BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, the Pac 12 football schedule is out. I want to know what your reaction was. What was your first thought? Where did your eyes go when it came to the master schedule or your team's schedule? Beaver fans, I want to hear from you. Did you immediately book a uh, hotel for a road game? Duck fans, I want to know. What did you think? What did you think of the schedule? I gave it to you kind of, sort of, yesterday. You saw it today released on the Pac-12 networks. Yogi Roth, Ashley Adamson on the broadcast. Thought the Pac-12 did a pretty good job with that. I've got some takeaways. I've got some opinions. I always have opinions. You know that. Uh, I also uh, am a little, a little disappointed with the Pac-12 ADs. Like, they didn't exactly go hard on USC, UCLA. They took the high road, you know. They're using honey instead of whatever to attract the uh, the bees. Uh, I think uh, I think if you're a Oregon State fan, you're encouraged. I think if you're an Oregon fan, you're encouraged. I do think there's a couple of fan bases that should be belly aching and uh, complaining about what what they got on this schedule. But I want to know from you. I want to hear from you. What did you think? Where did your eyes go? I don't mean to say it like that, your eyes, but I want to know where your eyes went on the schedule when it was released. I'll tell you where my eyes went, but I want your take as well. Tell me uh, what you think of the schedule, what you think of it in general, what do you think of USC getting a bye in uh, the final week of the regular season, presumably in front of the conference championship game, but also having to play nine straight games on their schedule. Nobody else is going to have to do that. Uh, What did you think of that? What do you think of Washington's month of November? Brutal month of November for Washington on the schedule. I told you yesterday it was going to happen. It came out today. Uh, had it nailed. Was happy to see that uh, the schedule that I got my hands on was the exact schedule that they released today. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, but sometimes it's a little you know, like, you know, you get you, you come into something. You know, I had a couple of uh, sources who told me, hey, yes, this is the schedule. I called around to a couple of sources that I trust and said, here's what I have for your school. Tell me if it matches. They did. And uh, today it was released. And I got to be honest, my eyes when the schedule came out, the master schedule, which I have published in its entirety at johnconzano.com, the master schedule shows that uh, the week 11 is a huge week. And it's where my eyes went when I first saw the schedule. I went to the Oregon-USC game. I found USC on the grid, I found Oregon on the grid, and I went to look and see when do these two teams play. Now, it may turn out that Oregon and USC aren't the best two teams in the Pac-12 conference, but this is the game I wanted to see this last season. I wanted to see Bo Nix and the Ducks in about week five form uh, against USC and Caleb Williams. Because I had seen Caleb Williams play against Oregon State and i got to be honest with you, I wasn't that impressed with what I saw from USC, but they kept winning and winning and winning, and the Ducks kept winning and winning, and then ultimately Oregon uh, tripped up in the month of November as they played Washington, Utah, and Oregon State in back-to-back-to-back weeks and lost two of those two of the three games. So I want to know where your eyes went. My eyes went to when, does, when do USC and Oregon get to play in the regular season. That's a game I wanted to see. And then secondarily, I looked at Oregon State's schedule very closely. Uh, 
And I got to be honest with you. I came away thinking that the schedule makers in the Pac-12 did Oregon State a big favor. Oregon State's got their bye just about in the middle of the schedule. Uh, they, you know, they play seven games and then get the bye. Then they, then they have uh, five games to finish the season. But their bye week, uh, you know, it, 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 it comes before the Arizona game, and Arizona has been a trickier matchup for some teams offensively. So I like that they'll get some extra prep against Arizona because I think that's a winnable stretch that they encounter with Arizona and Colorado back to back after the bye week. Um, both of them on the road, by the way. And then uh, I think the real test for Oregon State doesn't come really until week 12 and week 13 where it's Washington and Oregon at the end of the rainbow. Like, if you're an Oregon State fan who have watched Oregon State play over the years, Jonathan Smith coached teams, you know that they play their better football in the later part of the season. I think it's why they caught Oregon on a couple of occasions, once in the pandemic and once this last season, with great efforts at the end of the season. Like, I don't know what it is about Oregon State, but I think you want to be playing Oregon State early in the year, not late in the year. They play their better football late in the year, and that's a trademark of a team that's well-coached. And by the way, a happy 44th birthday today to Jonathan Smith, the Oregon State football coach. So I'm looking at Oregon State going, hey, this worked out for the Beavers. I like their schedule. I like that they open with San Jose State and Davis. I like where the the, – I I think there's a real good chance that they are 4-0 heading into the Utah game in Week 5. They get Utah at home on a Friday night. I think that's a hornet's nest for anybody coming into Research Stadium. It's a tough place to win. Uh, Beavers, I believe they are 11-1 in their last 12 at home. Like, that's ridiculous that they are that good at home, and they're getting Utah at home on a Friday night. So I think they like that. I I don't think the first half of their schedule is particularly hard. I could see them breezing through that with one loss or fewer in the first half of the season. If they beat Utah, I think there's a good chance they're undefeated going into their bye week. If they lose to Utah, it's a different story. So one big test early in the season and two big tests late for Oregon State. I like the schedule for them. I like the Ducks' schedule, too. They get a bye week before Washington. Real good chance that they are 5-0 and heading into that bye week. Real good chance that Washington's going to be 5-0 and heading into the bye week. I think week seven is made for national television, and Oregon and Washington, both undefeated likely, playing in that game. And so I, I think it's, the schedule makers have lined that up favorably for the, for the Ducks as well. They don't get USC until week 11. They play Utah at home, uh, excuse me, on the road in week nine. That's a tough one. That's always an ambush. But I think we'll have a good idea by week nine whether or not Utah with Cam Rising is a contender or pretender at that point of the season. I like how it lines up for Oregon. But what do you see? What do you see when you see the schedule? Did the schedule makers get it right? And, oh, by the way, a little disappointed in the ADs in the Pac-12 that they didn't punish USC or UCLA. It, you know, UCLA's got a pretty soft schedule. They, they don't, you know, they don't play Oregon. They, they uh, do not play Washington. Uh, they play Utah. Uh, they have to go on the road to Utah in in their conference opener. I guess that's a tough one for them. But uh, other than that, they get Utah and Oregon State, and everything else is you know Arizona, Colorado, Washington State, Arizona State, and of course the rivalry game with USC before finishing with Cal. But I felt like the Pac-12 uh, athletic directors could have been a little more petty there. Like you know I get it, high road. It's not personal. They all say that. It's proof here that they really are taking the high road. And some of this is tongue-in-cheek. Like, I don't really expect the athletic directors to go squid game on USC and UCLA.
but I wouldn't have blamed them if they did a little bit. I want to know what you saw when the schedule came out. I want to know where your eyes went. 503-417-7575. Great show today. We're going to go to Salt Lake City. Josh Furlong, who is uh, the guy at KSL.com. He writes. He uh, does some radio. He does some TV. Furlong will be joining us at 4 o'clock to talk about the reaction in Salt Lake City. I I, I like to look at these things outside in. Like, don't always like to look at it from our vantage point. I want to know, what are they saying in other places? So we're going to bring Furlong on to talk about Utah's vantage point. Tomorrow on the show, uh, we'll get Arizona State's vantage point. So I want to go around the conference just get an idea of what everybody is thinking and feeling when this schedule comes out. Uh, the Pac-12 championship game is set for December 1st in Las Vegas. I told you yesterday it was floating at this point. They have locked it down. Apparently ABC, ESPN have decided that Friday, December 1st is the date. Uh, it'll be at Allegiant Stadium in Vegas. Uh, some things that are still up in the air. Uh, Utah, potentially their season opener uh, coming against Florida, could be played on a Thursday, could be played on a Friday, could be played on a Saturday. A lot of people have said Thursday, Saturday is the real option. I think that game's going to happen against Florida on a Thursday night. I'll ask Furlong about that coming up. What's the sentiment and what is going on with Cam Rising's knee? We'll talk about that later in the show. Back in studio, uh, Stephen, Peter, Judah, I want to know, where did your eyes go when the 2023 Pac-12 football schedule came out? You know, what is it that uh, you found yourself talking about, thinking about, and looking at? Yeah, there's a couple things that popped out to me, and I think for, you know, I was looking at Oregon State and how they can get even more national credibility because we talked about with DJ coming in, how they are, you know, they were a quarterback last season away from maybe making it to Vegas. So how can Oregon State be very well respected and, you know, you know, flirt with the top 10? And I think it's really important that Utah starts out well. And their schedule is tough to start the season. They're going Florida, then they're at Baylor, Weber State, UCLA, and then it's the Oregon State game on that Friday. Those are three, three, uh, three of those four games are really tough with one being on the road at Baylor. I think for Oregon State, you need Utah to be three and one in that situation at least, and still be you know ranked. I think if Utah goes two and two, they may not be ranked going into that Oregon State game on a Friday, which then it will make it look not as impressive if Oregon State can get that win. Um, so that was one, and I thought for Oregon as well, you know, it, it, they did set it up for Oregon and Washington to try to be undefeated. But Washington again, they have a tough uh, non-conference schedule as well. You know, Boise State, they're. Uh, against Tulsa, then at Michigan State, but then they set it up against Cal and then Arizona before the Oregon game. So it's set up for that uh, sixth game for Washington. Last one I had was um, for Oregon as well. Tough last three games of the season for the Oregon Ducks, just like this past season when they lose to uh, Washington, they lose to Oregon State, they played Utah as well. They end with USC, and then they're on the road at Arizona State. We talked about this yesterday, John. Arizona State seems like one of those teams that – could be bowl eligible, could be really close to bowl eligible at that time. Kenny Dillingham taking on his old team. That will be in Tempe, and then they finish with Oregon State. I think it's a tough tough three-game stretch for Oregon to end. I think uh, what you know, it's clear that they identified five teams as contenders, the conference did, and they said, hey, look, it's Washington, it's Utah, it's USC, it's Oregon State, and Oregon. And, oh, by the way, how good do we feel in the state of Oregon to have both of these teams just rocking it and feeling pretty good about themselves. But it, it's evident to me, like outside of Oregon State playing Utah relatively early in the season, uh, it it is gamed for these teams to kind of meet late in the year. And, uh, and I think that that, to me, 
tells me that this conference is trying to set up TV dates late in the year that can cast some really good exposure on some Heisman candidates and really good uh, spotlight on potential big matchups. And let's start with the Heisman candidates. Uh, if you are Michael Penix Jr., I don't think there's a better chance to showcase yourself than having Oregon after a bye week, you know, essentially in week seven, and then turning around and going, all right, uh, you're going to get USC, Utah, and Oregon State back to back to back in weeks 10, 11, and 12 in a month of November that it's going to be a brutal month for, for Washington. But it kind of lends itself to, hey, it's Heisman time. Let's see you go perform against the defending Heisman champion and the Heisman winner in Caleb Williams at USC, and then Utah, and then Oregon State. So Penix Jr. is going to get tested when, with people watching and a lot of eyeballs. And I think the Pac-12 is going to get a lot of eyeballs at that time. Same goes for Bo Nix. If Bo Nix is going to win a Heisman Trophy or be in that conversation, in the last three weeks of the season, he gets USC, Arizona State, and Oregon State. Great opportunity for Bo Nix to have that moment where he sort of comes out and you know solidifies himself as a finalist or for Oregon to get that exposure in front of the committee. So I think this is totally gamed. Like, the Pac-12 did a nice job of gaming this system. Now, Colorado fans are not happy. Colorado fans are going, hey, we're starting with TCU, Nebraska, Colorado State, Oregon, and USC. They might be 0-5 under Coach Prime. Like, that's a brutal start for Colorado. But I get what the Pac-12 is doing. The Pac-12 is going, hey, like, there's a chance that the Thunder will be taken out of Deion Sanders' coaching early coaching tenure by the non-conference schedule, like, I can, I could see ESPN or Fox really wanting that Colorado at Oregon game to open conference play in week four and going, hey, there's some drama there. And so I get what they're doing. And then they're going to, then they're going to send USC, uh, you know, to Colorado uh, in the next week. So it could be like Colorado season could be over before they've even had a bye week, and their bye week does not come until week eight. And, and, even, but, and even if they do are successful, they end the season at Washington State, at Utah, like two tough places to play. So, I mean, it's going to be tough, I think, to even get bowl eligible for Colorado this year. But but look at the assets the conference has. Like, what are the assets? It's those five teams I mentioned, Oregon, Oregon State, USC, Utah, Washington. Those are assets. And then what are the other assets? It's Colorado and Deion Sanders. Like, to me, that's it after that. Like, you could talk about UCLA, but it's a basketball school. You could talk about Washington State, iffy on them right now with Jake Dicker. Stanford's in a rebuild. Cal's in, you know, just trying to get its head above water. Kenny Dillingham at Arizona State, I'll talk about him in a second. You know, he's promising, but they're not ready. They're, they're just talking about being bowl eligible. And then you, you talk about Jed Fish in Arizona. Like, they're dangerous. Puncher's chance to beat anybody on a given day, but I'm not including them with the contenders. So the assets stop with Coach Prime and Colorado, and I think by the end of the year, the shine will be off. Everyone will go, hey, Colorado's a nice story. He's got better players. He's a lot of fun. He's a good quote. But there's a chance by about the bye week, you know, with, uh, you know, six or seven games gone, that Colorado, it's kind of over for them in year one. Like, there's a chance of that. So I don't blame the Pac-12 for saying, hey, we need to get Oregon and USC on Colorado's schedule early because TV is going to be interested in those games. Like, I could see ABC, I could see ESPN going, we got to have Deion Sanders on camera for those games. And that's, 
an asset in in the Pac-12's corner. Peter, where did your eyes go when the schedule came out? Yeah, I'm a big believer in the Beavers next season, so my eyes went there. And honestly, I had a lot of the same thoughts that you did. And you mentioned those last two games being the big challenge. You know, it's it's outside of Utah. Fairly smooth before that. They duck USC. But I think there's an additional advantage there because a lot of times you'll have a couple good teams bunched together. And potentially, at the end of the season, it's sort of outside of your control, right? It's like, man, is Washington going to lose? It all comes down to this game, and it's going to be three hours before we play. What's going to go on? And those are the results. There is a good chance not only are they good rolling into these games, they're playing their best football in the second half of the season that they always do, but they're going to control their own destiny because of that. And I think, man, those games against Washington at Oregon, I think the Beavers are going to be playing so, so strongly. Coming up, we'll talk about Oregon and Oregon State in depth. What are the questions right now for these two programs? What do they need to matter in the Pac-12 this season? I do think the schedule's lined up for them a little bit, but I've got some things I've been thinking about. I'll share them with you next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. My kids' elementary school sent out a uh, uh, an email today in the middle of the day, and they said, hey, we've got some activities that your uh, your kid may be interested in. And, you know, it's uh, she's a third grader, the, uh, the middle kid, and uh, we have a first grader as well and a uh, college kid. But um, the, uh, the interesting thing was, you know, I, I was looking at this, and I did it independent of my wife. I kind of just saw the email, and it said, here are the choices. Yearbook, chess, uh, martial arts, uh, dominoes, or crafts, okay? Like, you can do one of these activities after school here in winter. And, I, you know, first of all, I'm just grateful that a uh, public school is still investing in like after school programs and that infrastructure and giving kids an opportunity to do some extra things but then the second part was which one of these things would my kid want to do uh and you feel like you know your kid and i think i do like i think if you know the third grader were a little older maybe she'd be into the yearbook uh, i don't think she's a martial artist um uh, i want her to do chess like, I, I wish, like, if I could go back and be, like, a third grader, I would have loved, to be, like, somebody to teach me chess. Because I really didn't get get it until, like, seventh or eighth grade. And by then, the kids who were really good at chess were really good at chess. And it wasn't fun because I was like, okay, what does this piece do? And so I, 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 I'm looking at her going, I'm thinking, like, I really want her to do chess, but she's not going to be into chess. Um, crafts for a third grader, probably too young for her. So it really came down to, like, dominoes being her thing and it was interesting i think anna agreed and said yeah dominoes i'd be interested to see where her vote would be guys if i gave you the option after this radio show you can do martial arts you can do chess club you can do yearbook you can do uh, crafts if you want or you can do dominoes what are you picking 
Without a doubt, John, I'm playing chess. I, I love chess growing up. I'm I'm actually a pretty good chess player. Are you a rated chess player? I, I'm not rated, but... I don't I'm, even I, know what that means. I don't but... either. But I do have, I have a beautiful marble chess set. I've had it probably 20 years now. It doesn't get as much action <laughs> as I would uh, like I it to. It. But I enjoy a good t- game of chess. You know, it's cerebral, it's strategic, it's mellow. Uh, that's what I'd go with. I think I'm too old to learn chess. Like, I don't know how to play. So I, I'm with you, John. I don't know that. I think I'd go dominoes. I feel like I could pick it up and uh, be just fine doing that. But chess, I, I yeah, a little, I'm too a little old. Too old. I don't think you're too old ever to learn chess. It's not like this is an, a, you know, you. like, you don't have to be, a, like, in prime physical shape with great knees and be able to dunk, mm. you know, to play chess. Like, all you have to do is learn how to play chess, Steven. Uh, I don't know. My well, I'm too old to play chess is like, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're signaling. I'm, I'm trying to dunk on people, though, you know. <laughs> After make up a good move. It's easy to learn. I mean, it's it's impossible to master, but it's it, it'll take you twenty minutes to learn. I I uh, well, thank you. The Queen's Gambit. Like if you've watched that movie or that series, I think it's on Netflix. It's one on one of those you know streaming services. But uh, the Queen's Gambit, really really cool little show. If you haven't seen that, check that out. I think it's sneaky good. Um, also. Um, I think if you learn chess, it helps you think. It's like it, it makes you sharper. You're, you know, you could play that game forever. Go to a park when you're 80 years old. You could play chess. I, my, no, my goal is to do that, but have it be like blackjack. So okay. I can know how to play blackjack. <laughs> there you go. So he wants to play blackjack, not chess. Now, Peter, I'm going to say something to you. That one of my friends said to me, same thing. Okay, I was in uh, I was in China for the Olympics in 2008. And I went to the Silk Market. Everybody's been to the Silk Market. They're always trying to sell you something, okay? Sell you a suitcase. And usually it's a knockoff of some brand or what? some guy taking you in a back alley trying to sell you DVDs or whatever. I came upon a really cool-looking chess set. Like, it looks every bit like ancient China. And I thought, oh, I need to own this. Like, I don't know how to play chess, but I'm going to learn how to play chess. So I got this cool chess set. I put it out. I put it on a bookshelf that we got. And I my kids will you know, fool around with it. They know as much chess as I do. And Anna's trying to teach, like, the younger one chess who seems to be into it. The, the third grader's not. Um, but I've had friends come over who accuse me, who say, like, your marble chess set, they'll go, oh, you just want people to think you're smart and you play chess. That's why you have that out. And, oh, by the way, you got all these books on your bookshelf. Like, oh, look at these books I read. I, You know, remember Bobby Bean? He gave me a hard time about that. <laughs> and he said, oh, look at the, all these books, JC. You're reading all these books. And like, I like to see the books that I've read. Yeah, typical Bobby, first of all. <laughs> and I'll be real. You mentioned that. So my beautiful, beautiful chess set, it's on a really nice kind of low, long shelf in the, the living room. And what does it have? It has some nice books. It has some vintage yeah. records. It has some crystal on it. So I'll be real. I don't have it strictly to, to make myself seem intelligent and worldly, but it was just sort of the logical place to put it. I feel like this is the reason why I'm choosing dominoes because, like, at my house, we have, like, my wife's fantasy football trophy in the living room. Yes. Like, you know, put up on display. We have my fake trophy that my uncle made me for a Christmas present. Like, that's the stuff we got. Well, I mean, but what's wrong with me trying to posture like I'm refined? And be like, you know, hey, look, here's a nice chess set that I picked up in China. 
And by the way, I, I play like I'm about a seventh grader. That's about how good I am. But what's wrong with me posturing that way? There's worse things that you can be than a pretend chess player. I'm just saying. Yeah, just there's, throwing that out there's there. nothing wrong with that. It's your house. So if you want it out, man, keep it out. Yeah, there's definitely yeah. worse things you could be. Like, uh, you know, it, it's not the worst thing because it just means you're, you know, you, you are smart and uh, dignified. I don't know and, if it means, yeah, I don't know if it means that. But well, I do have some cool books in yeah. there. And Bobby's like, you never read these books. I was like, yes, I did. All right. I want you to leave it here. Punch and audio is coming up. Plus, I'll give you our big splash. We got some splash stuff and we're going to talk about the nfl uh we're going to pick teams in the nfl what's the best bet on the board eight teams left in the playoff what's the weakest link if we can play the weakest link with the nfl playoffs teams who's the weak, weakest link left in the playoffs we'll talk about all that coming up leave it here back to the bald face truth with john canzano on 750 the game I think I do the Pac-12 a favor, and I don't think that they are uh, appreciating it in the way that they ought to. I, I, I don't need like a, I don't need like a big, uh, you know, public gesture. But uh, the Pac-12 was not happy when I got my hands on their schedule uh, earlier this week, coming coming out of the three-day weekend. The athletic directors had voted to approve the schedule, the new schedule that came out today. They had voted on that on Sunday and Monday, finalized it, and uh, I got a copy of the schedule uh, on Monday. I'm not going to say when because uh, I don't want to alert anybody to uh, who may have uh, given it to me, but I it, it was a matter of time before I got it. So I got it on Monday. I published something on it on Tuesday morning very early. Did not publish the full schedule. In part because I felt like if I published the full schedule, I was going to steal the thunder of the Pac-12 conference announcement that came out today. But I published enough of it that I think, you know, I went high level. John Willner told me that. He said, you went high level with that stuff. I went high level because I was kind of, you know, some of the things that jumped out at me, here they were. And for people who listen to this show, you got rewarded. Membership has its privileges. You know, American Express used to say that. I say that on this show. I say that to subscribers, whether you have a free subscription or a paid subscription at johnconzano.com. I say it because you're going to get stuff before other people get stuff. That's just the fact of the matter is uh, you're, I'm sourced. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take you places that you can't go otherwise. So um, the Pac-12 was not happy with me. I had one uh, executive with the conference who said they were pissed that it leaked. Well, I think I did them a favor. A, I think I alerted people to the fact that the schedule was done. And B, I think it created more intrigue and drama into the full release of the schedule today. Now, I could have undermined them totally and said, hey, I'm just going to put the whole schedule out there. But I also didn't think, like, you know, I, w I was still fact-checking some things. So on Tuesday, I put out what I could fact-check with 100% verification. I knew Arizona State was going to start with a schedule that was very home-friendly. I knew Colorado was going to start with a gauntlet. I knew Washington was getting the month of November, and I knew who they were playing. I knew that um, Oregon and Washington uh, were going to play, both of them having a bye week before that. I knew that the Civil War football game was going to happen on Black Friday. I put all that out, 
And I think the Pac-12 should be grateful for it because I think it created, it whipped up a frenzy in front of their announcement today on the Pac-12 networks. I heard more more people buzzing about that than I think would have been uh, talking about it. And what I'm talking about is simple marketing. I'm talking about the ability for some momentum to be uh, happening in front of their announcement. And I think if they're not just completely tone deaf to that, they should pay attention to that. I think they should pay attention to the fact that I think they got a bunch of eyeballs on Yogi Roth and Ashley Adamson and their reveal of the uh, of the schedule. And I think they did a really nice job. They had an interview with Michael Penix Jr. They revealed the schedule team by team. It was really smart. I think it was one of the better things the Pac-12 Network has done. I think it's one of the smarter things the conference has done. And also, you're welcome because I fed you, I think, a little bit of momentum by, by – uh, revealing that I, I had the schedule and, you know, I, I'm not going to say that they should get in the practice of leaking me the schedule because they didn't. I got it anyway, and they, they are apparently not happy with me, but I don't care. It's not my job, as I explained to them. Uh, it's, uh, you know, my, my job is to serve my reader, my listener, and my job isn't to, you know, pander to the conference. Like, in, in, you know, I'm not in the business of giving you spoon-fed uh, media analysis. You can get that just about anywhere else. But I'm telling you what needs to be told, and I'm giving you uh, the, the important stuff. And that's what I have vowed to do on this show, and it's what I have vowed to do in print, and I'm having fun doing it, and that's the end of that. Let's play some Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's start with the NFL. How about it? If we can uh, start with Tom Brady... Tom Brady uh, talked yesterday. We played this cut yesterday, but I, I heard it again. I heard something I didn't hear the first time. Tom Brady thanking everyone for the support after getting knocked out of the playoffs, finishing his press conference, his final news conference appearance appearance uh, as a Buccaneer maybe. Here's Brady. Punch it. I just want to say thank you guys for everything this year. I really appreciate all your effort, and I know it's hard for you guys too. It's hard for us players to make it through, and you guys got a tough job, and I appreciate all that you guys to cover us and everyone who watches and is a big fan of the sport we're very grateful for everyone's support and um, you know hopefully um, you know I love this organization it's a great place to be and thank you everybody for welcoming me all you regulars and um, just very grateful for the respect and and I uh, hope I gave the same thing back to you guys so thank you very much appreciate it he said thank you for this year I, I don't think he was saying goodbye like, for people who are still doubting if Tom Brady wants to come back, play somewhere else, I think he's going to, you know, so to speak, take up residence in Vegas, you know, alongside Adele and uh, David Copperfield, Tom Brady on the marquee. I think that thing is in the horizon. Like, this year, like, I, I originally heard Brady's comments and thought to myself, is he done? Now I'm hearing him go, respect my decision. I respect what you do in your job. And thank you for this season. Speaking of this season, Bo Nix, University of Oregon quarterback, he got a look at the schedule, says he's excited. 
punch it. I'm pleased to see that there's home and away kind of spread out throughout the season. Um, we have seven home games, and so we're excited for that um, to play in Autzen. I think every chance we get to play in Autzen is is a good advantage for us, and um, which it's just exciting. It's always an exciting time um, to play here at Oregon, and um, after experiencing it last year, you know, I firsthand got to got to see how um, you know exciting it truly is, and um, and so I'm excited for that. Obviously, um, we had some tough games last year that we're excited for. Um, for this year and then some new atmospheres that we'll get to go and play in this year and um, you know each each time you get a new schedule it's always exciting because you can kind of talk about each and every one of them um, as if they're you know this week um, but I think it's it's just all exciting and, and we have a long um, off season to get prepared for it he's excited how many excited or excitings did he use there Stephen? you keep in count I counted seven there John that clip was what like 30 seconds He's excited, 48 seconds, but he's excited times seven. Bo Nix, eager to get this going. I think you look, this is a great opportunity. I noticed the teams all sent out the schedule, right? So I subscribe to all the teams' kind of public marketing efforts, Oregon State, Oregon, Arizona State, Stanford, everybody. Everybody sent out the schedule. Everybody's also sent out buy your season tickets. That's what this is about for the teams today. And so Bo Nix, Michael Penix Jr., Pac-12, they're selling tickets today, and I don't blame them. Yogi Roth talked about Oregon State's schedule. He likes it the best. Does he? Here's Yogi. Punch I think out of all the schedules that we've seen so far, uh, and even the ones we will see, I like Oregon State the best out of anybody in the league of how this thing is laid out. Now, here's the deal. Jonathan Smith calls them, quote, special wins, end quote. He said his team needs some of those. Last year, didn't get done against SC. Didn't get it done against Utah. They need some of those special wins, and they have that challenge right in front of them. Utah on a Friday night, chance for a special win for that program. Then you go down to the end of the season, of course, Washington, Oregon, back-to-back, chance for a special win. That's the next step now. Right, we'll see what happens with Bengal Branson, DJ Uyunglele at quarterback. The spring, that'll shake itself out. Uh, but they got a lot of talent. Maybe best running back in the pack, one of the best in the country returning in Damian Martinez. So I love this team and where they sit and how the schedule's laid out. Now it's on them to take that next step because I like how they're spaced out throughout the season, the big special opportunities for them. Yeah, look, they're, they're spaced out, but Yogi's selling right there. He's selling Oregon State. He's selling some tickets for Oregon State and Jonathan Smith. But, you know, I can't decide if it's better to have them spaced out or it's better to have all those games come at the end when you're playing your best ball. Uh, the truth is you got to stay healthy. you got to get better as the season goes. But I think in some weird way, Oregon State having the obviously the Civil War game at the end of the season and then having Washington right before that, the week before that, you know, it kind of fits with what Oregon State has traditionally been under Jonathan Smith. They get better and better and better, and they play their best ball at the end of the year. And, but the, the key for the Beavers is going to be, you know, earlier in the season. It's going to be their non-conference schedule, getting through that okay. It's going to be, you know, playing Washington State and Utah in the first two Pac-12 games. You can't lose those games because they make the ones at the end matter more if you win them. Michael Penix Jr., he talked about the decision to come back to Washington. Here he is talking on the Pac-12 Networks today. Punch it. Um, the decision, it wasn't an easy decision, you know. Um, obviously, for everybody in that position, you know, that's that's a decision that's that's going to last a lifetime, you know, and that's basically one of the biggest decisions of your life, you know, um, as a football player. So um, I just felt like the decision I made to come back was, was best for me because, you know, I, I just felt like 
you know, just being another year in the system um, with this team, being able to develop and, you know, grow more as a, a person, as a player, and um, just to help this team, you know, I feel like the job just won't finish yet. You know, I feel like we left a lot out there. You know, I feel like we did have a good season, but at the same time, you know, we didn't meet all the goals that, you know, we had set forth at the beginning of the season. And Look, Michael Penix Jr. getting back to Washington makes Washington go. But I'm looking at Washington as a potential team that I, I loved them at the end of this last season. I thought they would have beat anybody in the Pac-12. I thought they, if they'd gone to the Rose Bowl, maybe they beat Penn State. Utah didn't. I think they, if Washington goes to the Pac-12 title game this last season, I think they beat Utah. I think they would have beat USC, whoever they played. But next season, it's a different animal. If Kalen DeBoer can't run the football, if Washington can't play better defense, the month of November is going, going to be tough for them. And I, I could see them losing one or two games in that four-week stretch where they play everybody. I think it potentially could be ugly for Washington there. And so I look at them as a potential step-back team. And let's throw on top of that that Michael Penix Jr. struggled to be healthy. You know, he has not, uh, he has not been healthy historically in his career, but he was this last year. Brandon Staley, Chargers coach, end of the season news conference. What do you have to say for yourself, coach? Punch it. Yeah, well, I think we, we definitely improved as a franchise this season. You know, we, we took a step as a franchise, and um, we, you know, earned ourselves a, a spot in the tournament. And, you know, I think um, I'm as frustrated as anybody that's a Chargers fan over what happened because there's no one that's investing as much as we are in what happened. And uh, the first half of that football game, I think you saw the very best of our team. Um, and then the second half, um, you know, you saw the, the places that we need to improve. But since I've been the head coach, I've been the head coach for 25 games, 25. And that is the first time that a lead like that, all right, has, has happened. You know, and we're the team over two years that have come back. We're the ones that have made the comebacks. We're the ones this season that had to fight to come back, to scrap. And so when I say it's different, it is different because – if it were the same, then we wouldn't have made the postseason. We wouldn't have, at 6-6, six and six, won four consecutive games to earn the top wild card spot. There is progress being made within our football team, and you can see it, because the team that we have right now is a much different team than we had a year ago. And so what I would tell the fans is that I'm just as disappointed as they are, but I'm really excited to get this process started, because just like last year when we made a lot of big improvements in our football team that gave us this chance to, to compete for a championship, I know that if we keep making that type of progress, then we'll consistently be there at the end. All right, so he said the weirdest thing in that, in that statement. Did you guys catch what he said? Yeah, he said strange? they've never been ahead by so many points. Okay, but that's not what only I that. thought was weird. Okay, so that's weird too, but... Here, I want to play this. And uh, the first half of that football game, I think you saw the very best of our team. Um, and then the second half, um, you know, you saw the, the places that we need to improve. But since I've been the head coach, I've been the head coach for 25 games. 25. Look up how many games he's been the head coach. I'm counting 34. <laughs> like, I, I could see him being off by like two. You know, he's not counting the playoff game, you know, whatever. He's, he's. He, he's 19 and 15. Yeah, I got 19 and 15. 19 and 16 that's, for his career in the right with the postseason, so 35 that's 30, games. That's 34, 35 games. 35 games. What is he talking about? What is, what is Staley talking about there? But since I've been the head coach, I've been the head coach for 25 games. 25. He said it twice. I mean, could he have just confused 20 with 30, <laughs> like 30 for 20? 34? Yeah. It was 35. I'm, I don't know. 
That pre- that whole press conference was weird. I tell you what. And here's the other thing: you can't say that first half was the best and the second half was not like our worst. You can't say that. You, that was like me going, "Hey, I had a great morning, but after lunch, I sucked." You had a great hour one, John. Hour two, <laughs> terrible. You're judged on the entirety, the totality of your game. He literally said they've never got ahead by so many points. Like we're always behind. <laughs> we were always behind to make comebacks. So he didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. I, don't, don't blame I, me. I, look, I, I don't. 25. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to dislike the guy. Okay? And, and look, he's 9-8 and eight in his first year. He's 10-7 and seven in his second year. They made the playoffs. They had a lead at halftime. He's definitely shown improvement. What he should say is, look, we were, a better game, we were one game better in the regular season. We uh, finished second in the AFC West to Kansas City. We made the tournament. And we played a good two quarters. And then it fell apart. Next season, the goal is to play a good four quarters in the, in the first playoff game. I'll buy that. But there was some weirdness there. And he's very defensive. And he's, you know, I've been the coach for 25 games when you've been the coach for 34 games. You can't say that. Since I've been the head coach, I've been the head coach for 25 games. 25. No, oh, 34, coach. My hand's shooting up. He said it so confidently I believed him, though. That was the problem. <laughs> he's selling. You know what? It, and I, I don't know if any of the reporters in the room were like, uh, excuse me, uh, 25? Was someone else coaching? Was Anthony Lynn still coaching for a while there? Like, what, what was happening there? But I also think, look, um, part of it is I think he's feeling it and he's hearing it. And there's two things going on. One, he's got to manage his ownership. He's got to instill confidence in the ownership group that he can still get it done. And second part is he's got to manage his locker room. So... I don't know what he's trying to do in this news conference. It feels like he's trying to manage the media, which by extension, that can help manage his ownership and can help manage his locker room. I hope he was better in his performance in front of his team in the locker room after the game. I hope he was better as he met with the Spanos family and the kids and you know, his four kids running that franchise. It's a mess. And, and in talking to them, than he was in the news conference. That's all I'm saying. I'm, I'm going to give him a pass on that one, but... Somebody tell him he's coached 34, 35 games. Somebody needs to tell him that. I want you to leave it here. Our big splash is still ahead. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Brandon Staley doesn't know how many games he's coached. He's 19 and 16. I wonder what he thinks his record is. He's only coached uh, uh, 25 games as the head coach, so he says. Do you think he counts uh, 19 wins at the 25 games? <laughs> so he's 19 know. and 6? That's what It doesn't make sense. If he would have said, I've only coached 19 games, I would have been, oh, he means he's coached 19 wins. But there's no 25, you know. Uh, he, he's 40 years old, by the way. He turned 40 in December. I, I want to know how old he thinks he is, you know? <laughs> like, does he think he's 32? <laughs> hey, you know? That's not a bad idea. Just, yeah, just divide it. Uh, let me, uh, Brandon, uh, on that subject, how old do you think you are? You know? Just subtract how, 10. Just subtract 10 from everything. How tall are you? You know? Like, just start throwing those questions at him. I don't know. I'm going to give him a, a pass on that one. But it does lead us... To our big splash, uh, and it's uh, it comes with a kicker. 
The one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Well, the Dallas Cowboys uh, saw Brett, Brett Maher basically uh, lay an egg in their initial playoff game. He missed four extra points in Monday's wild card win against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. After the game, Jerry Jones, uh, the owner of the team and the general manager of the team and uh, the resident boob with the Dallas Cowboys, he said that Maher would continue as the kicker, but uh, uh, Mike McCarthy and uh, John Fassel, the special teams coordinator, they both backed the kicker, but they also uh, have signed Tristan Vizcaino to the practice squad as insurance. So they're telling Maher, we have your back. Nothing to see here. We'd like for you to continue as the kicker. And uh, and in the end, they are going to get Vizcaino a uniform. We may need him in the end. Played three games this season with the Arizona Cardinals and the Patriots. Made two field goal attempts and, more importantly, three extra points in the Cardinals' win over the Los Angeles Rams earlier this season. Uh, Maher apparently, according to the special teams coach, was battling a case of the yips when he became the first player in any NFL game since 1932 to miss four extra points in a regular season or playoff game. That's 16,207 games in the NFL, and it didn't happen until Maher blew it. You can't trust Maher! That's in the end. I knew it. I knew it. I don't, you know, I don't know. You guys trust Maher to win the game if it comes down to a kick against the Niners? No, and this is what I was saying yesterday, John. I think they can just go out and find some off the street. They did with this Vizcaino guy. Like, he's a guy that they had in their camp for the offseason in 2020. He's been around. I think it's good to have some competition because if he can't make field goals in practice, I can't trust him in the games. I actually like that they're bringing someone in because I think it's going to put some pressure on him, and I think I think he needs some pressure. Um, you know, Jerry Jones says some wild, weird things. I was a little surprised to see him give Maher a vote of confidence. Um, you know, and in the end, you got Maher kicking the ball all around the stadium, and a bunch of people named Maher all over the country tweeting out, you know, I don't like my name right now. I don't blame you. If you're a Maher out there, you probably feel like a loser after that one. But in the end, uh, you know, people drop balls. T.Y. Hilton said, hey, we dropped, we had three drops in the game. Nobody talks about those because uh, they don't cost you a point, T.Y. So uh, I hope he gets his act together. But uh, the Cowboys apparently giving him a kick in the pants, so to speak, with Tristan Vizcano coming into camp. Up next, we go to Salt Lake City. What does Utah think about the schedule and what's going on with Cam Rising's knee? Stick around. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Our next guest is a friend of this show, Josh Furlong. You can catch him at KSL. You can find him on Twitter. If you want to know what's going on with Utah football, men's basketball, Utah in general. Furlong's your guy. He has joined us uh, previously on this show, sports director at KSL, beat writer for the University of Utah Athletics. He's a husband, he's a father, he's a man of the world. 
He's joining us now. Listen, before we get into this schedule business, uh, I got to ask you about your Rose Bowl experience. I know you were traveling. I know you were traveling at a time which uh, the airlines were having all those problems, and I know you were trying to bring your family with you to Pasadena for long. How did that go? How did that whole experience go for you? It, it went well for me. I was on Delta, so I didn't have any problem. My my family decided to stay back. Uh, we have we have a big trip planned this summer, so we decided to keep them at home this time, and I decided just to go out for the Rose Bowl. So uh, it was a, it was definitely just a full work week, uh, trying to, to to follow that and and just dealing with that. But it, everything went well for me. I didn't have to deal with it, you know Southwest or anything like that. Luckily, you uh, the game itself. I was a little bit surprised. Like I thought Utah would really come to play and. So much of their, their their identity is Cam Rising. When he goes out of the game, I guess that's it. But, uh, you know, is it possible that Utah was was thrilled to win the Pac-12 championship, getting to that title game took so much, and beating USC took so much that there was a letdown afterwards? Or what do you think happened against Penn State? Yeah, I think it was in some ways just kind of a level of attrition, right? Like you lose Dalton Kincaid. Uh, due to uh, an injury that kept him out. So it looked like he opted out, but it was definitely due to injury. You lose Clark Phillips, who is obviously a, a huge weapon for you on defense, but also more just importantly, he, he was a leader of that defense and, and kind of rallied, got people to rally around him. Um, so it, was, it, it definitely felt weird going into that game. I think, you know, a lot of people didn't necessarily expect to be there given the way that the season had gone. But, you know, everybody that talked about it, I mean, they, they wanted to be there. They wanted to win. This was one of those things where they kept saying that it was, you know, the first time was the experience, the second time was was to win. And, it, you know, you obviously watched it. It was a weird experience to be able to watch them in, in person just that day because they just didn't look like themselves. I don't know if they just felt like Penn State wasn't as good of a team as they thought they were. I don't, I'm not entirely sure. But it was just like a weird vibe from the team all around where it just kind of felt like they were going through the motions and, and didn't really get into a, a consistent rhythm, uh, you know. And, and then in the second half, when obviously Cam Rising goes down, it just it, it really just kind of it felt like they threw the white flag in and it was just kind of done at that point. So uh, it, it definitely didn't feel like Utah football by any means. But look, I mean, getting to, to two Rose Bowl appearances in back to back years, I mean, that's that's you know nothing to knock. It was something that they wanted to do. I think it just came in maybe more unfavorable circumstances than they were hoping. Yeah, Cam Rising injury, do we have a sense of what it is and what is the University of Utah saying about the injury, if anything? Yeah, the university doesn't say anything. I've tried many times to get something official, and, and the, the best that we can get from Kyle is that it's a, you know, a, a leg injury. He won't even specify a knee. It, it, quite honestly, it is a knee injury, and it, it looks like it's an ACL tear. So it's going to be probably about a, a nine-month recovery give or take, you know, how, how, how he responds and everything. So it's, it's not something that, that's something that Cam can't come back from, but it's definitely not good based on the timing of the injury when the season starts and everything that way. So, you know, if Cam's available for the season, I, I, I might be surprised. I mean, he, he recovered fast from a shoulder surgery, but I have to imagine that his, at least his, his running ability and everything is limited at the very beginning of the season. So it, whatever the injury officially is, uh, what they ever tell us, uh, it, it, it doesn't look good for them, but I think they hope to have him back by the beginning of the season. Michael Penix Jr., Bo Nix, um, you know, we don't have it, we don't have figures, but the prevailing thought is that those guys were retained at Washington and Oregon with the help of an NIL collective. When, when Cam Rising makes his decision to come back, 
do you believe a collective plays a role in that, or is he just, hey, I love college so much, I'm coming back? No, I definitely think the NIL aspect of it uh, played a role into it, right? I mean, I think he had to look at the tea leaves and say, look, right now I'm not I'm not necessarily going to be a draftable quarterback. Maybe if I am, I'm in the lower rounds, five to seven. You know, you come back to Utah and you, you at least have a consistent income in terms of what the NIL collectives or whatever sponsorships that he's able to get. I mean, I think it was it was pretty telling from him. The, the day that he announced that he uh, was coming back, there was a video dropped from a credit union here in Utah that had an interview with him immediately. And so it's, it, it clearly shows kind of the 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 situation that he's in where, look, you know, you, you're coming off of an injury where you, your draft stock is, is already not as high as maybe you want to. Now you've got this injury on top of it. That's going to be tough. Why not come back to Utah, make some cash, you know, at least get some money in there and see what your future holds, you know. And, and, and obviously this is no guarantee for any of these guys that decide to come back. You could have season-ending injury, career-ending injury. But I think right now I think you're seeing this NIL play a, a good role for, for college football, maybe adds a little bit more parity to the game because now you have guys that feel like they don't have to force themselves into the league when they're not ready or, or whatever it may be. Now they can sit here and stay in the, in the league and, and, and have some fun and, and, you know, get paid. I mean, you have to still go to school. I mean, there is that aspect still, so that has to be a, a weighing force. But I think it, it's good for the game. I think it's a great opportunity to get all these, these quarterbacks back. And I mean, the Pac-12 is going to be stacked next year. I'm excited to see it again. We're talking to Josh Furlong. Uh, he is the beat reporter, University of Utah, uh, works at KSL uh, right there in Salt Lake City. Uh, the schedule reveal, it comes out. I got to know, um, when you're looking at Utah's individual schedule, where do your eyes go? When you're looking at the grid of the whole conference, where do your eyes go on that initial look, Josh? Uh, my look is, is initially to the contenders, right, the, the teams that are expected to be at the top of the conference, which is obviously going to be Oregon, USC, Washington, and Utah. And so for me, looking at their schedule, since they, Utah does play all of those teams this year, they, they get Washington on the schedule after not having them last year. You know, that, that's quite the gauntlet. And, and for me, the, the one that I, I look at always is USC. That's always an emotional game for Utah ever since, you know, the Pac-12 divided it into the north and south. That's always been kind of the defining game in the South. Now it's obviously a little different, but that game's always meant something to those two programs. And the fact that Utah beat them twice last year, uh, you know, that's going to be an emotionally charged game, especially in the last time in the Coliseum, maybe potentially ever, depending on if USC wants to schedule Utah. So, you know, that one's going to be tough to be able to have that and then back it up with Oregon the week after. And that's, that's, that's as tough as it can probably get in, in conference play for Utah. Uh, to be able to have two of those contending teams, two dominant quarterbacks that are going to be really solid, you know that that is probably where my eyes uh, went to first, and then obviously where Washington is at. Uh, Michael Penix is, is a problem. You know he he's, he's obviously able to, going to throw for a lot of yards, and I think that's going to be something that Utah's going to be mindful of. And I think the fact that they get them at the end of the season could bode very well, or it could be a you know a disaster based on how Utah's season has gone. So. Uh, I think I think it's a, a good schedule for Utah, but the reality is this is probably the toughest schedule that Utah has ever faced in the Pac-12. Getting better players is, you know, I, I noticed on signing day it looked like Kyle Whittingham was getting more stars, uh, so to speak, than he had in prior classes. It, is the success uh, meriting or netting him better talent? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, like, I think one of the – the situations even was it, last summer, I believe it was in June, 
Utah has more recruits than they've ever had officially visiting their program. Uh, you're getting guys that are, are taking interest in the program based off of their, you know, winning the Pac-12 championship and then going to the Rose Bowl. And the fact that you're able to do that again, you're starting to see guys that, you know, they were a lean for a certain school. There were a lot of guys that were leaning towards Stanford. And obviously David Shaw leaving that kind of impact as well. But you're, you're getting guys that are starting to say, look, I can, I can come to Utah. It's going to be consistent there. You've got a consistent coaching staff that has kind of a blueprint on how to do it. Yeah, you may not have the same stars as, as an Oregon who clearly cleaned up with, with their recruiting class or, or the, the you know, skills players of USC, but you're finding ways to beat these teams on at least a consistent basis. Now, you know, add to that class by bringing in higher-tiered four-stars. You know, you're getting closer to those five-star athletes that, that Utah's still coveting. You know, I think this, this is one of those things that Kyle has kind of preached. He, he doesn't want to just kind of be – he calls it a flash-in-the-pan – program where you're really hot one year and then down for the next couple of years. He really wants to build this as a consistent program that that is sustainable, right? So it's been a slower climb than, you know, like USC instantly inserting a bunch of talent from the transfer portal, but he feels like it's much more sustainable that way. And, and at least for the last, you know, five, seven years it has been. We're talking to Josh Furlong in Salt Lake City, covers University of Utah. KSL is his uh, employer. Uh, among others, but uh, Josh, uh, as you sort of look at this off-season spring football into next year, um, you know you got Florida as an opener at Rice Eccles Stadium. Right now, they're saying that game could float. Um, it, the prevailing thought is that Utah wants to play Thursday games. Will that game end up on a Thursday, or what's what's kind of the whisper that you're hearing? Yeah, like you said, that's kind of the prevailing thought. Uh, you know, I think the fans want it to be a Saturday just because there's tailgating and kind of just the, the spirit of, of, you know, what college football means on the weekend. But Kyle Whittingham really loves those Thursday games. It's, it's a night to be able to showcase, you know, your own product. And they haven't necessarily had these big of names on those nights. Michigan is one that they had back when Jim Harbaugh started there. Um, but for the most part, you know, this this is kind of a day that, that Kyle's really carved out for himself to, to say, look, this is the day Utah plays. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it you know, moved to Saturday, but at the same time, everything that I've heard and every kind of the prevailing thought is that it will stay on Saturday or Thursday and kind of be one of those, those night games that you, you're going to get a lot of attention. You're going to be the only thing on that at least matters. It's not going to be an FCS opponent. It's going to be a game with a lot of importance, and it's the first time that you know Florida has really traveled west. I think outside of going to the Rose, or not the Rose Bowl, the the bowl game in in December, this is the furthest west that they've gone really ever. So it's a great opportunity to be able to see a, a program that has obviously a national championship pedigree. Uh, they're not quite there where they were, but at least it's a it's an SEC team that that, that matters, and it's it's a night that that's going to give Utah fans a great opportunity to kind of start that season. Josh, uh, this season, uh, like I, if I had to pick a team, I'm still picking Utah to win it because I've seen them win and win and win, and until somebody knocks them out, I think they're the pick. But, um, you know, how is this season going to feel differently, or I guess the run-up to this season going to feel different than maybe a year ago? Yeah, I think for just starting with Utah, I think the difference is the health of Cam Rising, right? It's, if Utah has to deal with a, a quarterback battle going into that those first few games, you know that that leads you to wonder where Utah should fall. Should they be a, a conference favorite? Um, you know, I would never doubt Kyle Whittingham, but that that's a tough challenge, especially going with Florida and then Baylor. But I think 
you know, ultimately, I think the, the, the difference here is you've now got a bunch of proven teams that have been at the top of the conference for most of the season this last year. And so it very well could be Washington. It could be Oregon. It could be USC. It could be Oregon State for even that matter. I think, you know, you've got a lot of proven talent, and I think it makes it much harder to guess. And I'm, I'm kind of excited to see what that, that media vote's going to be in July when we turn in our ballots to say, okay, what team do you think is going to win? Because I don't think it's going to be much of, an, of a consensus as it has in years past where, you know, everybody kind of expects it to be USC one year or Oregon or Utah. I, I think this year you're going to get a lot more split votes and, and probably nobody's wrong just based on, on how last season went. So for me, I would probably lean towards Washington just based on the trajectory that they had going into the end of the season. Um, but, I mean, I could make an argument for even UCLA, you know, who's, who's probably not going to be talked about in, in those same categories. But, I mean, I think it's, it's a league that, that has definitely grown, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out. Josh Furlong in Salt Lake City. Hey, I appreciate you joining us, Josh. Thank you, man, and uh, good luck to you. Thank you so much, John. Appreciate it. Good stuff there from Furlong. Look, I like to get the outside-in look at the conference. Tomorrow on the show, we'll get a look at Arizona State, and I want to talk some basketball on the Arizona State front. Tomorrow they will be hosting UCLA. Uh, ASU hosting UCLA tomorrow, and then UCLA will play Arizona on Saturday in a big showdown in the conference. But if Arizona State can beat UCLA tomorrow night, look out. This conference uh, could have a uh, a problem at the top of the standings and no dominant team. Uh, really important game tomorrow night for the Pac-12 as it comes to the NCAA tournament and potential teams getting in. Is Arizona State for real? Didn't play a tough non-conference but have been very good in conference play. Are they just a good team playing in a conference that is not very good, or is Arizona State going to make the NCAA tournament? I think we'll find out a lot about the Sun Devils tomorrow night. I want you to leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up at uh, 5 o'clock, we're going to do something different today. Anna and I have had a big discussion about this. She's popped into the studio. Uh, we're changing the 5 at 5. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna narrate all five stories. Okay. Okay? Yeah. And then I'm going to sit back and just give commentary. Okay. On the five stories. Okay. You know why? Why? I got to thinking about this. <laughs> People don't come to this show uh-huh. to hear me read the news. True. You're the news anchor. Oh, okay. Why do people come to this show? They want to hear your opinion they about want, the news. They want to know what I think so they can agree or disagree uh-huh. or whatnot, okay? Yeah. So you're going to give the five stories, yes. all five. Wow. So I get to choose all five stories? Yeah, you get to choose them, and then <laughs> I am going to react in real time, uh-huh. not knowing what the stories are, my reaction to the stories. Okay. Okay? Yeah, clearly we've we've discussed this yeah. Yeah, lengthily. Well, prior to this moment. I was talking last night <laughs> with uh one of the longtime producers of the show. Mm-hmm. And he said, "You know, you know what I like my favorite part of the show is when, you know, you you give your opinion mm-hmm. on something." Yeah. And he says, "I don't always agree with you, but I just that's the part of the sh- I like that when you're spitting opinion." Mm-hmm. 
And then he says that the five at five, it bothers me when you're just reading the news and you're not really saying what you think about the stories. Mm -hmm. And then I said, well, why am I reading the news? Yeah. You're the news anchor. True. Why have you not thought of this before? Uh, mostly because I didn't like the pressure of having all five stories. But if this is the edict, then I will go with it. Just, you know, I'm easy going that way. And, but I think yeah. we should re. I don't know that it's the five most important, biggest stories in sports that day. That's not always the category. We're also which... changing that. It's going to be the 10 at, at five. Oh, the 10 at five? Yeah. Good. Okay. It's, it's catchy. Yeah. Yeah, See how it goes there? Yeah. The, the 10, 10 at five. At five. Yeah. The is, 10, 10 at this five, is, 5. This is going to be great. So that'll be at be 5 o'clock. That'll be what comes up at 5 o'clock. Um, by the way, by the way, I was telling the, uh, the story earlier in the show. We'll get back to sports in a second. I was telling the story earlier in the show that, that I got the email about the after-school activities that were available in uh, our public school for our third grader and our first grader to participate in. Mm -hmm. And I saw the list, and I asked, you know, People like Peter and Steven, like, you know, if given the choice for dominoes, chess, you know, uh, yearbook, uh, martial arts, mm -hmm. um, or uh, fun and games with the oh, oh, I forgot that one. Fun and games. I'm sure Steven would change his answer now. Steven picked dominoes. Uh, <laughs> Steven, would you rather do fun and games with the PE teacher or dominoes? Yeah, fun and games sounds way Same. more fun. Say. <laughs> Fun and games is in the name. What was fun and games with dominoes? Yeah, how could yeah. it not be fun? That's good marketing. That is good marketing. Um, yeah. And then uh, I and I, I gathered that our third grader would want to do dominoes, you know, that that might be her thing. Yeah. Craft's too young for her. Mm -hmm. uh, what did the first grader and the third grader, what was their reaction, and what did you sign them up for, actually? Uh, I signed them up for, both of them wanted fun and games. Really? Yeah. I mean, is that shocking? It's like Steven's spirit animals over here. Like they're, you know, they're just, they get you. <laughs> Don't you think most kids, given that array of options, would choose fun and games? Would you like to do arithmetic? <laughs> yeah. Would you like to do fun and games? Uh, they wanted, both of them wanted fun and games? Mm, yeah, I haven't actually spoken to the first grader about it yet. We're going to try and sneak her into chess because she has expressed oh. an interest in chess. So we'll see how that goes. Um and then uh, the third grader, I think she picked dominoes as her second choice, but only because she's seen those great videos of, you know, the domino setups where it just goes on and on. Like somebody has taken time oh. to painstakingly that, set up dominoes that's throughout their That's not that, that kind home. of dominoes, is it? But that's what's in her head. She's so, been on TikTok. Yeah. Looking at people I was doing. trying to say that without saying it, you know, just, yeah. She's been meandering around TikTok. I know because my algorithm suddenly is giving me, watch the rat navigate the maze. <laughs> I'm like, why am I seeing this on my TikTok? Where did, where did all my sports clips go? Right. What happened? Yeah. It's just nonstop videos of hamsters. Yeah. Hey, in the end, uh, this is a marketing question. You're also, for people who don't know, Anna went to a pretty prestigious college. I did not. Like, I don't generally talk about where I went to college because people make fun of my college and they say it was a party school. Mm -hmm. I went to California State University, Chico, mm -hmm. which is also known as Chico State. Mm -hmm. uh, they they had a fair amount of, like, on uh, St. Patrick's Day yeah. and Halloween, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, on the morning of classes of that day, mm-hmm. the bars open at 6 a.m. Wow. I went to class the first year. And I walked in, and the teacher said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, <laughs> is this not the right day? And he says, it's St. Patty's Day. You're not supposed to be here. And I said, okay, go drink green beer. And so the bars are just packed at 6 a.m. Yeah. There's lines outside them. They open at 6 a.m. in the morning, and people just get trashed. Mm-hmm. Um, you went to Pepperdine. Yeah. Okay. You were over there with the Saudi princesses and the uh, the valedictorians and the tennis players of the world, and and you were a double major in broadcast journalism and international business. Yeah. Am I got that right? Yeah. Okay, so you have some marketing in your in your education, is what uh-huh. I'm saying. Uh, Pac-12 releases the schedule today. Yeah. Big reveal, 10 a.m. Uh-huh. Pac-12 networks. Yogi Roth, Ashley Adamson. Boom. Here are the schedules. I thought they did a nice job with the show. I obtained a copy of the schedule early, mm-hmm. and I think I did them a favor. I think I whetted the appetite for what happened today by revealing some details of the schedule. There are some people at the conference office, Anna, that are not happy with me. Mm. How do I make them understand? This is this was good for you. What I did was actually. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, well, it's not really your job to make them happy. Your job, like by definition, is that you are a journalist. Right. You develop sources. Sources tell you things and share things with you. And then there's a decision that you make on uh, what to share and when. And uh, I, I don't know. I mean, are they just upset because they feel like you stole their thunder? They didn't, they're pissed that it got out. Okay. And they're saying we're pissed. They're, they're, th- what I got during the last commercial break is we're not mad at you. We're pissed at whoever leaked it to you, which is a, just a weird way of saying we're mad that it got out. Well, you but know. that's more fair, though, right? So, I mean, I, I wouldn't expect them necessarily to be happy about it because, obviously, they wanted to be the ones to break the news and have it be a big thing. And, you know, you're, you're writing about the schedule and, you know, sharing key highlights from the schedule and your commentary about it wasn't part of their plan. Right? Yeah, and I don't, care. I don't care if it was part of their plan or not. I actually think it ha- helped them because I think a bunch of people didn't know the schedule was coming out. Suddenly we're like, oh, I want to see the schedule now. Yeah, there I was want- a spotlight on, you know. On the whole situation. My buddy Softy up at KJR in Seattle texted me. He goes, you know what? They should be, like, high-fiving you because suddenly now everyone's going, I want to see the rest of the schedule. It was like it was like getting a peek. Mm-hmm. It was a sneak peek, so to speak. Well, and the thing that I think people may not understand is that there actually is quite a bit of thought that you put into what you wrote about Yes. yesterday. Yes. Before the official schedule was released. Yesterday at, like, Five in the morning, big discussion on whether or not I should publish the entire schedule because I had the ability to get it all. But I had a couple of reservations about doing that. One was I like to fact check everything. And so I wanted to go team by team and get to sources at all 12 conference members and go, hey, here's what I know. Can you confirm this? And go down, 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 down because I didn't want anything that I published to be inaccurate. Right. So first of all, I was being careful there. Second thing was, I also felt if I published the full schedule, it really does take the steam out of their announcement today. Mm-hmm. And that's more of a, as a, as a uh, mat- measure of respect for you, I'm not going to be haphazard and just throw this whole schedule out and go, aha, look what I got. So instead, I published what I could verify. I could verify that the Civil War football game will be played on 
the Friday, Black Friday, it'll be the only conference game. I could verify that Washington was playing a gauntlet in November, and here's who they're playing, because I had that, and I had confirmation from sources that, uh, you know, Washington was playing these games, in fact. And so I, everything that I published, like 10 or 12 different things, was all verifiable, and I knew it was accurate. And, and today when it came out, it, like, I had it cold, but I also felt like it was, it accomplished the mission of informing people and taking them and giving them some in-depth and source reporting that they wouldn't get anywhere else, but it also didn't blow up the Pac-12's plan to do this big reveal show that they were planning today. Yeah. It takes some steam out of it, but um, I, I think people forget that journalists are often handed information like that. And you're not here to serve the Pac-12, actually. You're not their mouthpiece. You're not on their PR team. Um, your audience, the people you serve, are your readers. <laughs> and are the readers going to benefit from that information? And could they even, you know, I, I agree with the argument that, you know, you probably turned people's attention toward the topic in a way that was beneficial for the Pac-12 and helped amplify the hype around the schedule and the discussion around it, which, you know, people love nothing more than talk about it and discuss the ins and outs of it. Um, but your primary job as a journalist and commentator is to serve your readers. Like, that is the highest bar. And, you know, going back to the first point about fact-checking, that's something that I'm sure has, like, it's taught in J schools, and it, it is something so important that has come over time because I think given a different reporter, perhaps a younger, more ex inexperienced reporter, they just take what you got and blast it out without even checking, without knowing, potentially, that what you had was like a rough draft. It wasn't even a final draft, which it was not. But, you know, I think that fact-checking is incredibly important. Yeah, and that's the part of it. Like, you know, look, I, I'll be honest. I reached out to Arizona State that yesterday morning, and I said, hey, um, I'm going to report that you're playing eight conference games and that your bye week falls in this week, you know, whatever yeah. week it was. And they were like, how do you know that? And I was like, because I have the schedule. And they went, oh, boy. That was, the, that was the, the reaction I got. But, you know, it was incumbent upon them. And there's a working relationship you have. Yeah. They're not blowing the cover by, tell, by confirming, but they're doing a professional courtesy by me saying, hey, look, I'm going to report this. They have an opportunity then to go, you're going to be wrong. That's all they can say, like, right. if, they, if, if, if they have it differently. And they did say, you are correct on the bye week, and you are correct on the eight home games. Like, everybody knew they were going to have eight home games, but so it wasn't that big a deal. But it was um, – I think it was a win for my readers and listeners uh, who would have otherwise not had it. And a lot of people across the Pac-12 footprint that then disseminated that information. But I think it was a win for the conference. I think they had – I'll bet you their ratings were better because of that. Mm -hmm. You know? You're yeah. welcome. <laughs> Like Dwayne Johnson over here to say Maui that. from Moana. Coming up, more talk about media, journalism, sports, and nonsense with Anna. Plus, the 10 at 5, coming up at 5 o'clock. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, John Papadakis will be joining us. 
He is a former USC football player. Played uh, back in the days of uh, Sam Bam Cunningham. Uh, important time in our country, not just for college football, but for civil rights as well. Uh, there have been some books. There have been some movies. Uh, Papadakis lived it. He also is the father. You may re- recognize the last name. He is the father to Fox broadcaster John, uh, Petros Papadakis, uh, who was a former USC football player himself. Several generations of family members have played at USC. He uh, also is uh, a former restaurant owner who was a crooner. What's a crooner, Anna? A singer. Yeah, but it's not just a singer, is it? Like, a singer-entertainer? Like, not someone just singing in the shower, but like what? kind of a classic But when you think performer. of... When you think of uh, one who croons, peep, yeah. <laughs> when helping? you think of croons, what do you think about? <laughs> do you think about um, vowels held for a long time while singing? Kind of like who comes to mind? Frank Sinatra. Sinatra, crooner, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Harry Connick is he a crooner? Ah, crooner. That's a crooner. Uh, <laughs> crooner. Anybody else have a crooner recommendation? Is Michael Bublé a crooner? Tony Bennett. Tony Bennett. Yeah. Total crooner. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think this was a this was a crooner. We had to do an intro for our song. No, that's not a crooner. That's not a crooner. I had a I have another crooner, and I can't I can't remember. Remember we had uh, we had Schultzy. Remember Schultzy? The uh, here we go. Let's let's try this one. Yeah, crooner. Here we go. Well, it's a marvelous day for Kenzano. He'll make some people happy, some mad. He won't sugarcoat anything for you. He's the best in the biz, so be glad. You tell him. All of Kenzano's knowledge will make you think hard. And his smooth ball don't, it seems to glare in the light. Can I just have? John Kenzano, please. <laughs> I have not heard that. You haven't heard that one? I thought I heard all your jingles. That's, that's a good one. That's Schultzy. What? You know Schultzy? That's Schultzy? Yeah. No way. All right. This is a Schultzy's an interesting character for people who don't know. Like if you go back, I gotta I gotta think you gotta go back to about 20, 2013. Sounds about right. Yeah. 2011, 2012, 2013. He was right in there. Um, I fired him, but, uh, <laughs> I had to, we had to part ways. No, it, it, Schultze was jack of all trades. Uh-huh. He could produce a little. He could sing a little. He now is doing his own YouTube channel where he does, um, these card reveals, like sports card, he opens packs. Yeah. Box breaks, he calls Box them, right? breaks. Box breaks. They're very exciting. I love Schultze. We had to let him go because uh, one time he was on air and he was on his phone. He was supposed to be in studio. He was on his phone. He got on the Max train and and he was he was supposed to be staying in the studio and be on air and contribute to the show, but he was on his cell phone on the Max. And it would have been fine if he would have said, I'm on the Max, but oh yeah, he left early and joined via phone instead of being in the studio. <laughs> I didn't know that was the reason. So we traded him. <laughs> We didn't fire him. We traded him to another station, but I did it with a heavy heart because I know the guy has – he's one of these people that could do 
a little bit of everything, mm-hmm. including singing. Yeah. Steven and Peter, you think they can sing? Uh, I know Peter can. I don't know about Steven. I think Peter can play an instrument. I don't know if he can sing. I don't know. <laughs> you guys have listened to my record where I'm singing, like while we were doing this show. Can you cue it up? I would like to hear no, it again. No, 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 no. I'm like Brandon Staley I'll, right I'll now. I'll tell you what. After the show, I'll, <laughs> I'll send you something good, John, after the show. No, I want America to hear this. Forgive John. I'll send He's you something good for America to hear injury. after the show. <laughs> yeah, I was just criticizing Brandon Staley for not knowing how many games he coached. Yeah. Peter's like, you've heard my song. I want to hear Steven sing, though. Steven, can you sing a lick? Uh, no, singing, not my thing. I'm more of a dancer. I can dance a little bit. There you go. Really? So between Peter and Steven. Yeah, but... We've got a band. We're halfway Steven's to a crew. Skill, Steven's skill does nothing for radio. He's a dancer. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I'm dancing right now. He takes his shirt off really fast, though. We've seen That's that. That's part of my dancing, though, too. <laughs> right. Right. Steven dancing. That's Peter's just an singing. extension of your dancing skills. One of John Papadakis is going to sing for us in the 5 o'clock hour, and he's also going to talk about how unhappy he is with USC leaving to the Big Ten. Mm. He's, he's still fired up about this. Yeah. So we've been messaging. And uh, we talked loosely about him coming on the show, and he said, uh, I'll join you on uh, January 15th, Wednesday, January 15th at 4 o'clock. And it turns out that's that January the 15th, 18th there, John. It's, there's no, yeah, he said 15th. Yeah. Oh. So you I got a text a, from I him. I you're pulling a Staley again. No. I got a text <laughs> from him at 4 o'clock saying, are you calling me now? And I'm going, it's not the 15th. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're well, past that's... the 15th. What are we doing here? And he goes, I got the date wrong. <laughs> Never mind. And I said, no, you're coming on. And by the way, we'll bring you on at 5.15. Okay. So he'll be he'll be here at 5.15, right after you do the 15 at 5. Oh, that's 15? Yeah. Okay. So we'll yeah. do that coming okay. up. Got it. I want you here for it. Uh, up next, though, we're going to talk about the weakest link in the NFL playoffs. Who's the weakest link? We'll tell you next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Used to be a game show called The Weakest Link. You are the weakest link. You've been voted off. Uh, I want to know who you guys think the weakest link is in the NFL playoffs. I am uh, having a difficult time looking at these games. I also want to know who you guys think, where where you think the best bet on the board is when it comes to the uh, NFL playoffs. I've been looking at the spreads uh, for the games, and uh, I'm going off DraftKings Sportsbook and Casino. Um, I could use our friends at Spirit Mountain, but I uh, don't have access to their lines right now in front of me, so I'm going to use DraftKings as the lines for the NFL games. But I also want to know who you think the weakest link is and then anna i don't want to put you on the spot but i'm going to put you on the spot but you're about to have you noticed our eight-year-old is way into sports yeah you know mm-hmm. she's watching the tv she's watching the scroll at the bottom she's asking me who i like in the college basketball games she's asking me who i'm rooting for in the nfl playoffs um i got a buddy i know i'm so happy for you you finally, finally got, got one of buddy. three one of three. Although I would say that the college kid has really yeah. gotten way more into sports as well. I got cooler so. to her after she got into college football. I don't know if we go that far, but yeah, yeah. she's yeah, I'm yeah. cooler. Uh, <laughs> all right, so let's look at these games uh, along those no, along those lines. Let's look at the Saturday games. Let's start with the Saturday 1:30 game. Jacksonville is at Kansas City. 
Kansas City's an eight and a point, eight and a half point favorite. Um, guys, I want to declare the Jacksonville Jaguars the weakest link. We may have some debate from people looking at the New York Giants, uh, but it, who who else believes Jacksonville's the weakest link? Not that they're going to lose the most, but of the eight teams remaining, I feel they're the most incomplete. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say yeah. I, I agree with you. I disagree with you. I think uh, I'm going to go with the Giants. I'm going to go with the Giants on this one. I think the Giants, especially going up against the Eagles, I think they're more likely to lose to the Eagles than I do the Jags to the Chiefs. I, just, I think there's no way the Jags are beating the Chiefs, are they? Like, what what makes you think that? Is it Trevor Lawrence find something in the second half? You Or you only watch the second half of that game with the Chargers? Yeah, I only watch the second half. Uh, no, I think um, – <laughs> The thing about it is, is I like Doug Peterson as coach. I think he's a really good coach. He matches up with Andy Reid really well, and he's gonna be aggressive, right? Like he knows that they're eight and a half point dogs. Like he's gonna be aggressive on third and fourth down, and I at least think the offense can somewhat score with the Chiefs. I think when you play teams like the Chiefs, like the Bills, like the Bengals, you have to score a lot of points, and I think this Jaguar offense can at least hang with them offensively enough, and then hopefully you got to make a couple plays on defense. But I think offensively they can score some points. Kansas City, eight-and-a-half-point favorite. Uh, in the uh, NFC game on Saturday, the Eagles are hosting the Giants, the aforementioned Giants. I think it's close, but I just I think the Giants have a little bit more balance. I, I like their team. I like that they run the ball a little bit. Uh, I think Isaiah Hodgins has become an important player for them. Uh, I was really disappointed in the opening round of the playoffs that Kayvon Thibodeau was was a non-factor. I did not see him as a factor in the game. In fact, the only time I really saw him get any camera time is when his hand got stepped on, and, and they showed him getting his hand taped on the sideline. But Giants are going to the Eagles. I'm just I'm not sure on the Eagles, and I and I can't figure out that division. Eagles, Giants, Cowboys, all still uh, you know out there. NFC East looks like it's a powerhouse. Is it possible that that's a great division or is it just convenient that they have three teams that are still alive? I mean, I know Peter's been on the Giants, you know, this postseason. He's been high on the Giants. My, my problem with the Giants, especially in this matchup against the Eagles, I, by the way, to answer your question, I do think the NFC East is pretty good. I would say it's more on the good side rather than they're getting lucky side. I think all four, even the Commanders, the fourth place team, was a solid team this season. So I do think the division is good. Uh, but this matchup against the Eagles, the more I dig into it, the more I like the Eagles. And I have to believe that Jalen Hurts is going to be close to 100%. He's not on the injury report, and I think that's very important because you go back to Week 14. The Eagles played at New York against the Giants. The Eagles ran all over the New York Giants in that game. 31 carries, 253 yards. That's 8.2 yards a carry. And then you look at the Eagles' defense. They're number one in the NFL against the pass. Daniel Jones, great game against the Vikings. They're one of the worst teams against the pass. So I don't, I can't, I don't expect Daniel Jones to have a huge game through the air. He never has done that in his career where he's so consistent throwing the football. And I think the Eagles' run game is actually going to be really good, especially if Jalen Hurts is somewhat close to 100%. So I, I really like the Eagles actually in this game now. All right. Bengals-Buffalo Bills on Sunday at noon. I actually think the Bills are a little vulnerable in this game. I, I still would pick them to win. But I'm, I left the wild card weekend looking at the Bengals, looking at the Bills going – Neither one of these teams blew me away with the way that they played. And, in fact, I thought the Bills were a little sluggish in some ways and maybe out of sync. But this is a rematch of that Monday night game that gave us Tamar Hamlin's injury. Our 8-year-old called that to my attention. She said, rematch! And uh, so <laughs> we are uh, 
looking at that game, I think there's a chance Cincinnati could win it. I wouldn't bet it, but it, again, it's Buffalo minus five, and I'm I would steer clear of that. I just wouldn't touch this game. Yeah, the spread seems right on in that one. Like I, I I'm kind of with you. I think Cincinnati has a chance, but I do like Buffalo in the game. If I had to pick it, which I probably will bet on it because I might as well bet on it. I'll be watching it. I'll probably bet the Bills. <laughs> I think I think they're the best team in the NFL, so I'm gonna go with that. Hmm. But I do think I do agree with you. The Bengals, one of the more dangerous teams. The thing I worry about them though is that offensive line. Even in that wild card game against the Ravens, I believe they gave up four sacks. In a cold environment up in Buffalo, I think it's gonna be tough uh, to protect Joe Burrow. I think the Bills might get after him a little bit. So I would go Bills, but I do think they are vulnerable. I also look at the Niners and the Cowboys. This one is San Francisco minus three and a half. Sunday, three thirty kickoff. Um, I think San Francisco is going to win this game. I'm a little nervous about Brock Purdy, who hasn't had a bad game. Dallas's defense showed us against Tom Brady that they can get to the quarterback and they can make the quarterback uncomfortable. We haven't seen Purdy look uncomfortable. I just I think this is going to be a closer than expected game, and I guess by that I would say I do think it's about a field goal in this game. I think San Francisco wins, though. I'm going to disagree with you. I think Dallas goes in and wins. I think it's because what you just said there with Brock Purdy. He hasn't had a bad game yet, and I and I said this last show. Like maybe we just need to admit he's good. I think he's good, but he has to face a team like the Dallas Cowboys in that defense. And we saw uh, on Monday what they can do to a Tom Brady made him look very average as well. And that running game, Tony Pollard, Ezekiel Elliott, stills going well. Dak, nice bounce back game, had a great game. I think that uh, you know the Seahawks showed a little bit where you could throw the ball down the field on the 49ers, take some deep shots. I would be, I'd expect the Cowboys to do that. I think the Cowboys go into San Francisco and uh, get the upset win. Mm, blasphemy around here. Uh, there's Stephen weighing in. The weakest link, though, are we? I'm saying the Jags are the weakest link. Uh, do I get uh, Peter? You think the, that the that it's the Jags as well, but Stephen, you think it's the Giants? Yeah, exactly. Okay, yep. we'll keep an eye on that. Coming up, Anna's going to give us the five biggest stories at five o'clock. I just put a bunch of pressure on you, then took it off. See, <laughs> like normally you could be psyched out. Like I wish I could be that guy that could get into the ear of the Dallas Cowboys kicker, because I think I could tell him. I could get him set straight. Yeah. Yeah, so. I just did it with you. <laughs> I freaked you out by saying you're going to have to come up with all five stories. In fact, we're going to do 10 or 15. Now I've just said, no, it's only five. You're relieved. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. What if I got into the ear of that that no good, lousy, four missed extra points maher uh, and uh, told him, hey, you're going to have to kick a 56-yard field goal. <laughs> oh, never mind. Just kick an extra point. See? This will be a cakewalk. See? You do this. You have one job to get that done. Um, we see people who come out of the stands. That's the thing that's crazy about the extra point. Is yeah, I get it. They moved it back, you know, over years, and they, they've made it a more difficult than a gimme. Mm-hmm. But you have like Dr. Pepper or different promotions bringing people out of the crowd, telling somebody wearing jeans and a sweater, kick an extra point for five thousand dollars, <laughs> and you see it happen. This isn't like making a half court shot. That's what makes him missing four extra points. Remarkable. <laughs> have it's, you ever have you ever kicked field goals before? Yes. What was your what was your long? Because I was talking to Jude about this. I used to kick field goals a couple years ago. My long was I believe it was either forty three or forty four. I kicked one in the low forties yeah. in high school. And 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 look, I only kicked in high school because I we didn't have a kicker, and so basically I kicked extra points. 
And I, I played on offense, and then I stayed out, and we kicked extra points. But we got in a game, and it was against uh, Herm Edwards' old school, Monterey High School. And uh, it, we had like a 40-yard, 42-yard, 41-yard field goal. And it was in a game we were way ahead of, and the coach goes, you want to kick it? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, because I've done this in practice, and I made it. And I couldn't believe it. But I've also, I've missed an extra point, too. I know what that feels like. And everybody, it's a long walk to the sideline when you missed an extra point. Because everyone's like, how hard is that? You know? But uh, a lot of lot of screwy things happen uh, with field goals. The thing that is amazing to me is that it wasn't a one-off. And he missed them. Like, it wasn't like he hit the upright on one extra point and, oh, it was no good. He missed four extra points. He just missed them. And one of them... He missed it high into the right. Yeah, there's one he missed to the right, then he over-adjusted, goes to the left. <laughs> he was Jeez. really bad. You know what it was like? It was like one time when I was a kid, my dad had a bow and arrow. He got it out, and he said, oh, you can mess around. Just don't shoot it at anybody. Like, I, you try to shoot a bow and arrow for the first time, like 15 yards away, you think it's an easy thing? Uh-uh. You're missing <laughs> to the right. You're missing high. You know, heaven help me. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. I got a text from my, uh, my old friend, friend of this show, Nick Aliotti. He says he likes the Giants in an upset, guys. How about them apples? Peter's got to be feeling good about that. Peter's been on. Peter's been on the Giants all postseason, John. I mean, I don't know. You've been you've been listening to Pulse. I know you have been. He's been all over it. Well, he likes the Giants. I bet he likes them because they can run the ball. Yeah, I mean, control the line of scrimmage. I don't know. I don't know that I'm going to outright pick him. I'm just saying that's going to be a closer game than people are expecting. I know Philly, man. That defense is not the Vikings, but Daniel Jones, he looked good, and I mean, Saquon Barkley's finally healthy. They're dangerous. Keep an eye on it uh, every day in the 5 o'clock hour. We do the 5 at 5. Today's going to be a little different, okay? We're changing it up. Anna's the news anchor. She's going to read the stories. I'm the commentary person. I'm going uh, to do what I do, whatever you say that. I'm going to react to the to the news. I don't even know what you're going to talk about. Good. Okay? I like it that way. So uh, this will be a little, bit, a little bit of surprise. Tell me if you think it works better than us just both reading the five biggest stories um this is going to be very unique to this show no one can rip this idea off it's unique <laughs> to this show let's do it the five five at five. The five at five brought to you by mercedes-benz of wilsonville see more than four thousand vehicles at swickert.com number one. Oh, you do that part huh? yeah uh, the Ohio Casino Control Commission is worried about betters harassing collegiate athletes over their performances. And they're thinking of banning individuals from Ohio betting markets in the future. So this is the director of the Control Commission responding to an incident that happened earlier when University of Dayton's men's basketball coach Anthony Grant spent time during a post-game press conference defending his players from outsiders who have their own agenda. 
The this director is uh, referencing the state's authority to put harassers on an exclusion list from all gambling in the state. I, I don't know if this is going to be enforceable, first of all. That's my initial reaction. It's like, good luck trying to find at I love the Flyers on Twitter. Uh, second part of this is there's a certain element of free speech involved in this. How far are we going with harassing? If You know, if Ohio State's kicker misses a field goal and the Buckeyes don't go, like, I'm not the first person on social media going, you know, uh, this guy's a bum, and I don't think you should do that. But I also am out there going, you know, if we, if we stop start limiting people who have opinions on things that are unpopular, like, how far does that slippery slope go? I don't like this. I do think people should have better form when it comes to uh, and more civility when it comes to social media. But I do not think that the Ohio State Gaming Commission or the Nevada Commission or the Oregon Racing Commission should be in the business of hunting people down on social media because they've been mean. Number two. Worth noting there, sports betting in Ohio just became legal January 1st. Have fun with that. So Number two. Uh, Rob Gronkowski saying Aaron Rodgers should really focus on Super Bowls and not MVPs. This might be uh, in relation to Rogers' comment just recently yep. where he said, do I still think I can play? Of course. Can I play at a high level? I think I could win MVP again in the right situation. Fellas, can you vouch for me? I said that exact thing yesterday. I said, uh, look, focus on winning games and winning championships, not on winning MVP awards. There's a problem there. I think it's a personality defect when you start talking about MVPs before you start talking about helping your team win games. Period. End stop. Gronk, you get it. I feel you. Gronk saying, bro, why are you thinking MVP? Don't you want Super Bowls? Super Bowls, I think, are five times greater. But that's not how Gronk talks. Oh. He's like, bro. I don't do you know. a very good Gronk. Yeah, close on that one. Number three. Oh, number three. Oh, the pace of this. Uh, I think I can keep up. Shohei Otani, will he become Major League Baseball's first $500 million man? In uh, 10 months, barring a last-minute extension with the Los Angeles Angels, it'll be his turn to venture into the open market. And the number that keeps being brought up, probably by his agents, is uh, the star's next contract, and they're talking $500 million. That's crazy. Are we so um, desensitized now to yes. sports stars and the amount they make that $500 million before would have shocked us, and now we're like, oh, yeah, it's probably about right? Yeah, look, I'm not going to shoot any number down. Uh, the truth is nobody's worth $500 million, but uh, if anybody's going to get it, Shohei Otani is probably the guy because, you know, he's pitching – uh, he is uh, hitting. Uh, he's a uh, threat to win a Cy Young. He's a threat to win MVP every year. Um, you know, he's runner-up to Aaron Judge for the MVP award. This is a guy that helps his team in a number of different ways, on the mound, in the field, at the plate. Um, I think this is cool, and he's going to have all 32 teams knocking on his door. But good on his agent for planning this story uh, out with whoever he planted it with because this is, this is an off-season story that undoubtedly has agent fingerprints all over it. Number four. And I go. Oh, I was still reading about that. Okay, moving on. Uh, so remember when we talked about slap fighting? 
So slap fighting yeah. was officially going to be a thing a in thing. Nevada. They had approved it. They said this can move on. That's, that was in October of yeah. last year. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Well, guess who was behind that? Remember who was behind Dana that? Dana White was behind Dana that. Dana White was behind that. And so given his recent open hand strike of his wife, um, that's on hold right now. So slap fighting fans you're gonna have to be a little patient because it's not moving forward just yet yeah there was a there was a video that circulated that is pretty um disgusting uh it it, it was in romania at the slap fighting championships in romania it's kind of a big deal over there i guess um but apparently one of the guys gave a devastating blow to the other competitor and uh apparently he hit on the top uh, he got hit on the top of the head, mm -hmm. but apparently there was like this horrific disfigurement that his face underwent. Like the left side of his face was swollen and bloody. It's very barbaric. I think they're rethinking it. Uh, and look, I'm going to show you. Here's the picture of it, of what happened to the dude's face. Yeah, that doesn't look good. This isn't good at all. That's a and so apparently despite the disfigurement, the guy went on to win the $7,800 first prize. He needed seventy thousand dollars in plastic surgery treatment after, but there are rules. Uh, in look at fighting. there he is. He won the whole thing. Look at him. Does he look like a winner? Uh, nope. It's like he had a rough bout. Just look at his face. He didn't win. I don't care if he got the belt. Number five, Anna, go. Uh, let's see. Mackenzie McDonald upsets reigning champion and number one seed Rafael Nadal in round two of the Australian Open. Is this the beginning of the end for Nadal? No. No? No. Uh, look, I think uh, when you, uh, you know, it was I was talking about this yesterday. When you look at the top of tennis, this whole thing, match point or whatever this this documentary that is out, but, um, you know, he, he was hampered by an injury. He had to limp off here. Like, I still think 22 Grand Slams won um, speaks for itself. Until he's healthy and gets knocked off, he's currently ranked number two, uh, I, I still think that you consider Nadal part of a, you know, this is not the end. This is what people say when a champion falters or a champion gets beat, but I think this was this was due to injury more than anything else. I want to see him healthy and beat before I declare that it's over. This isn't like boxing where you lose and maybe you lose once and you lose the rematch and you're gone. Uh, the, this is the highest level of tennis. And I still think even with all the great young tennis players, the, the older players are still going to dominate. The older, more experienced, good players are still going to dominate this sport until it's time for a transition. That... Is no, the that no. was only four. I thought it was a five and five. That was only four, though. Okay, number five. <laughs> Are we I thought we were going to ten. Okay, no, number five. <laughs> I was done. Do you I was like, that went well. That went really fast. <laughs> do you want to hear about the ticket prices to Dallas Cowboys at the 49ers? Sure. Or do you want to hear about the Packers and what they're donating? No. Okay. Uh, prices. Give me the. Show me the money. So the seats to the uh, Cowboys game with the 49ers uh, are topping a thousand dollars in this uh, lead up toward the Super Bowl. It's a hot ticket. Hot ticket. The actual average ticket price per one of the ticket vendors is one thousand one hundred 
and fifty-six dollars. That's for a single ticket. What? What? Did you know the average ticket price for any NFL game this season was one hundred fifty-one dollars? That was that was lower than I thought it would be. Hmm. I I don't know why, but look, I get it. People want to be there. They want to be in person. It's the Cowboys. It's the 49ers. It's two you know it's two brand names. But the average price of fourteen hundred and twenty dollars on the secondary market for this Niners Cowboys games at at Levi's Stadium is uh, is is a hot ticket. I think there's there's an element here though that nobody's talking about. You look, I grew up a Niner fan. I think there is a reluctance for Niner fans to sell their tickets, fearing that Cowboys fans will buy them. So I think you go in as a Niner fan going, hey, I'll keep the ticket unless I can get this price for it. Then I'll sell it to a Cowboy fan. Like, uh, you know, like uh, Paul Giamatti playing Einstein in a Verizon commercial. (laughs) We all have our price. It's evident if you've seen that commercial. So for Niner fans, I look, if you go to an NBA game when the Lakers are in town, this happens in every NBA city in the country. The home fans sell their tickets to Laker fans who are coming out for that one game. Hmm. The 49er fans are not going to want to sell their tickets to Dallas Cowboy fans. I think if it was any other team, it wouldn't command that premium, but it's it's so-called America's team. And it's a playoff game with big implications. And frankly, either one of these teams could end up in the Super Bowl if they win this game. I still like the Niners. I'm not paying $1,420 to see it, though. I'll Cheaper. Watch. They mix the Giants and Eagles game uh, a bargain. What are you paying to get into Average that one? Average ticket price for that is $889. <laughs> Even cheaper than that, Jacksonville Jaguars at the Chiefs, $524. That's nuts. That's crazy. What's the most uh, you've ever paid to go see a sporting event? I'm curious to know this. Like, I, I just wonder, because I think a lot of – I, I was over in Athens for the Olympics, and uh, USA Basketball, the dream team that didn't have such a great Olympics that year, was playing. And there was a, uh, a well-known business owner who is in the state of Oregon who contacted me and said, hey, I'm going to be dropping into Athens. Like, who does that? <laughs> I'm trying to get tickets to USA against, I can't even remember the team they were playing. Yeah. Like, I have a connection. And uh, I said, you know, I don't have a connection. You're going to be better off in the secondary market. But then I started looking at what the secondary market prices were to see USA Basketball play in the Olympics. It was ridiculous. Like, in the thousands. Wow. To get a seat. This this individual bought two seats. And I was like, I would never do that. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, granted, I had a press pass and I could go see the game. But (laughs) I it just... I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Like, there's a number out there. $1,400 is way too much to go see. You could. There's so much you can do. Go buy yourself, like, five TVs for that amount of money. I can't. Go, I can't go buy a sofa and a flat-screen TV for $1,420. <laughs> You're better off. <laughs> you have those things at the end. 4K. What's the most you would pay to see your team play in a game like that? Think about that. Tweet at me at John Canzano BFT. The crooner himself. Former USC star John Papadakis is joining us next right here on the BFT. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
I've been looking forward to having our next guest on. He's been on the show before. John Papadakis uh, played his football at USC. He uh, was a defensive standout at USC. He uh, also is the father of Petros Papadakis, who's been on this show numerous times, uh, Fox broadcaster, FS1. Uh, John Papadakis also has reinvented himself as a Tony Bennett-style crooner, singer. Uh, Joining us now, former USC football player, John Papadakis, who has been kind and patient enough to uh, bear with us today. How are you? Hey, good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on the air. We're having fun. I've got good guests on today's show, and uh, the Pac-12 schedule's out. You know, life is pretty good over here. And uh, how about you, man? Are you still singing? Are you, are you touring? All of it. I read all your stuff, and you know, you, you make everything interesting. I love Thank the you. stories that you draw from your family and experiences you've had as a kid because we've all had those that made us fall in love with sports. And yours, you know, illuminates your take on things and uh, and properly shares your, you know, the, the heart that you have in it. Well, you're I very Italian, that. man. You're very Italian. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I am very Italian. Let me ask why you. Uh, try, why do you think I try to imitate those Italian singers? They can sing. <laughs> Hey, let me ask you, John, like you talk about the love for sport. Where did it come from you? And, you know, uh, what about your dad? Did your dad play sports? Did did he, uh, you know, was... Oh, yeah. Uh, no, yeah. He, <clears throat> my father loved playing sports. He was the youngest of eight, and his father was quite powerful in the town. He was a he was a bootlegger here, one of the main ones on, in the, uh, you know, the L.A. area. He did business with Al Capone, believe it or not you know, because they shipped the liquor around and, and we're here in a port. And uh, he didn't want any of his kids playing football or athletics. He's a Greek immigrant, a real rough guy, because, uh, you know, you can't make any money playing football, at least not then. And my father wanted to play so badly because he loved the game. And uh, the San Pedro High School football team, you know, that's an old school, and it was in the old Marine League. And the, uh, the old man built a, a home about a block from Daniel's Field, which is right in the heart of San Pedro, the old part of it. <laughs> they had a loudspeaker, and he could hear, you know, the, uh, the, the loudspeaker from his home. And he finally let his son play, and they could say, Papadakis made a touchdown, Papadakis did this, Papadakis did that. And the old man came down from the house and climbed up into the press box and told him, Oh, the guy, you're not pronouncing my name properly. <laughs> he threatened them. So <laughs> the, the, the public announcer had to speak Greek to get by. I love that. Uh, you know, John, yeah. it, you, your kid, Petros, it's got to be fun for you to watch him uh, call games. But what did it mean to you to see him in a USC uniform after you had played you there? To see both yeah. You know, his, his brother Tasso preceded him, and, yeah. Had there not been any Tasso, there wouldn't be any Petro because Tasso went through hell to play. You know, he he was one of the two freshmen. He and Sammy Knight, when um, during um, the first year of Coach Robinson's second term there, you know, as head coach, John Robinson. Yeah. And uh, he was recruited, and he was in his first recruiting class of his new tenure. And he and Sammy Knight made the varsity right off, and Tasso, they 
played at fullback and linebacker. He was actually designated to be a two-way guy. And unfortunately, every year he got a season-ending injury, which required major surgery, and every year he'd come back and fight and win his position just to, you know, have – he had four major surgeries in four years. He set a record, I guess. Anyway, he finally had to back off the game, and uh, Petro, you know, came behind him and said, I'm not going out that way. And he had that catastrophic foot injury. I think he had a, uh, about nine operations, almost lost his foot. And, um, you know, still rode it out and shined his senior year, led the team in touchdowns, was captain of the team, etc. Wasn't a great winning team, but it was a USC football team, very talented, and, you know, he fought his way to the top of that and stayed there. So Tasso, you know, paved the road and Petro ran down it. Some, something about athletics that the Greeks, you know, adore, having invented the Olympics and everything. The Greeks believe that athletics is just is a virtuous pursuit. It's pure, just like art and architecture and drama, you know, music, <clears throat> all the arts, because it's a revelation of human character. It reveals human character, you know, when you participate in sports. And anything that revealed human character, the Greeks thought of as being artistic and virtuous. So I could go on about it, you know, about the virtue of sports. But, yes, I think there's something uncontrollably, uncontrollably wonderful about it that draws us all into its very, uh, its very center. You have a deep history in connection to USC. As you say that, and you talk about sort of the virtue of sport, I can't help but think about USC and UCLA leaving for the Big Ten Conference. How did that strike you? Not well. Not well at all. You know, there's so many times we've watched USC Cal, USC Stanford, you know, USC Beavers, Oregon State Beavers, who beat an O.J. Simpson team. They only lost that year. A national champion, they beat three to nothing in the mud and the rain. Earthquake injured, Steve Priest. Anyway, you know, how, how can they, I think, let me give you this scenario. USC was really down right at the end of the century, really down. And here comes Pete Carroll, right? And everybody said Pete who? Same way they said John McKay. When John McKay was hired in 1960, they said John who? You know, Pete came from another place. John came from Oregon. John was my coach. Pete was the guy I did all the recruiting for, but that's that's another story. Um, so he comes in, and he, you know, it's the dawn of a new era. He starts to win. He doesn't lose. He develops a joyous pattern of winning. The university's coffers fill, the endowment triples, they get an ambitious president along with it who sees the opportunity, and everybody loves sports. And, you know, they're still living on his afterburners, on the flames of what he created there and what he accomplished. And I saw that turn around in just three or four years. The Pac-12, you know, they say everyone excuses it off because it's a money deal. Well, I think the Pac-12 in the long run, it could be a lot more valuable than the Big Ten, media-wise, too. But they just have to set their sails right. 
I guess it suffered because of bad leadership. And everybody they caught them when they were down and just drove themselves down further by losing their two, you know, premium partners, the Southern California boys. But I think it's a hasty mistake to to abandon something that has such deep roots. And um, football is all about roots. You know, it's interesting, John. I see some of these old movies made in the late 40s and early 50s about football, especially about university football and stuff. And, you know, I see them on these odd channels on my phone. And it hasn't changed that much. You know, it hasn't changed that much. So I, I think that we get fooled that, it, that change itself is, or the appearance of change is healthy. We put it under the, you know, the, the uh, heading of progress or what's new or what's woke, so to speak, and um, it's possibly not better. And the promise is, of course, that it's more lucrative. But sometimes, you know, everybody goes back to Brill Cream. And I think the Pac-12 Pac will go back to Brill Cream and that SC and UCLA will someday return to it. I hope you're right. I, and David Shaw, the the uh, outgoing Stanford coach, he said just that. He thinks that geography ultimately wins out. Uh, John Papadakis is our guest, former USC football player. Uh, you were there. Sam Bam Cunningham comes through the doors at USC in 1969. You and Sam have authored a book uh, that is a fantastic story, Turning of the Tide, How One Game Changed the South, USC Playing Alabama. Um, take us through what that was like in Sam Cunningham and sort of watching. Why it. The story was yeah. created in the first place. You know, the game was by and large forgotten, hardly even an issue in the respective uh, uh, media guides of the two schools that participated. Not thought of as a great conclusive event. And um, Sam Cunningham's always been friendly to me, but. Uh, with some trepidation because we fought a lot at, at USC. I was promised to, that I could play fullback, and I could have played fullback. I had the speed and the, the ability. But they recruited him as well, and he came in a year after me, and they said, he's going to be our fullback. You're going to be our middle linebacker. <laughs> so I said, well, what do I have to do to play fullback? You know. The cheerleaders don't want to date guys who make tackles. They want the guy who makes a touchdown. <laughs> in those years, fullbacks carried the ball 10, 15 times a game, at SC anyway. And um, they said, well, you have to break his neck. So I tried. And I couldn't. You know, I tried, <laughs> but I couldn't. He, he, he was tough, too. And um, he credited me for being the toughest guy ever he ever faced. I read a paper in the late 90s. And that just surprised the hell out of me, you know, but it, deeply I appreciated it because Sam was always a fair person. And he was an honest person. God rest his soul for being so honest. You know, it wasn't like a lot of players to give each other credit, let alone, you know, they were too busy seeking it for themselves. So I, uh, I remembered that game we played in and I wrote the story. It's a story called Turning of the Tide about a 20-page story, and I was trying to get a movie made of it and couldn't get it done. So instead, I cold-called a, a literary agent in New York named Ian Kleinert, and 
he took the call by <laughs> some quirk of fate and, uh, you know, like a movie itself, just getting the book accepted or the book idea accepted. And I told him the story. I pumped it to him, and he um, said, you have it written down? I said, sure. So I faxed it to him right away. He called me right back and said, who, who do you want to do it? And I said, Bill Plaschke, because Bill, you know, can weave a good yarn. But at the time, Bill was, uh, I tried him. At the time, Bill was um, writing a book about Lasorda and didn't want, didn't, didn't want to do it. So uh, he reached out to an uh, author he had in his stable named um, Don Yeager, who is a award-winning, you know, writer of sports books, and we collaborated on that book together. We brought Sam in and made him an equal partner on the project, and um, we all contributed. And it became that book, which uh, did very well and went into three or four printings, and now we've optioned it for a movie with Village Roadshow Entertainment Group, a man named Steve Moscow, who heads that uh, entertainment group, uh, got very interested in the book. And so we're working with producers and writers now to uh, to create the story. Give me an idea. You know, you go back to that game. You had, you know, Governor Wallace in Alabama in 1963. He makes that stand at the schoolhouse. You had, um, you know, Birmingham, tough place, uh, and really – a lot of turmoil in the 60s. You guys are right. coming in there as USC. What was that like to go in there and oh, play we a game? Protected. We were protected. Everywhere we went, there were plainclothesmen, and they were, you know, officers everywhere, uh, uniformed and ununiformed. I mean, our motorcade, we always had a motorcade, but the motorcade was presidential in its, in its scope. You know, there was even a fake motorcade going another way just to draw people away from it. But, you know, the prevailing attitude about the South at that time was characterized in a movie called Easy Rider. Easy Rider was the top independent, independently made film of those years, 69-70. And it became iconic. And it was about two Westerners, you know, guy motorcycle hippie type guys, who take a trip all the way across America and go to the Deep South. And in the Deep South, they get killed because they don't conform. They're different, and they won't conform to the mores and ways of that area, and they get shot right off their bikes. And then that's the end of the movie. Well, that's people. That's the impression people had. So there was much fear amongst, you know, the players on our team and concern about going down south. One player was from Birmingham and had experienced the bombings in the church and as a child, Clarence Davis, the great tailback. And he was great with the Raiders, too, helped them win a Super Bowl, as I recall. But, um, and there were, you know, the black players just, uh, no matter where they were born, by the color of their skin, they were, had to be very concerned. Sam Cunningham was from the integrated, peaceful, coastal, patrician, town of Santa Barbara, you know, and, and he didn't have any, he grew up with racially mixed neighborhood, and he didn't have any idea about discrimination or those injustices in the South, and he asked his father how he should act, and his father was a laconic kind of guy. <laughs> he said, 
just don't be saying don't do or say anything stupid you know just keep to yourself and sam just stayed in the room unlike others who who went out a little bit but they went out in packs and watched each other's back we went to a movie check this out john we went to a movie uh, i think it was a clint eastwood movie a mule for sister sarah something like that friday night movie before the game and when we walked into this neighborhood theater, and it was an upscale, you know, neighborhood, let's say upper middle class, the people who were sharing the uh, auditorium with us were astounded to see black people come into the theater. And one by one, they started leaving and making comments. And by the time the movie was over, we were the only people in the theater. And that theater was full on a Friday night. That's crazy. And just, I, I can't imagine sort of the the tension that was there. Um, you guys wrote the book. How was the book received when it came out first, you know, right away? Went up to number 30, I think it was, on Amazon. I remember, you know, hearing that it was selling well. And it was well accepted. And, you know, people were after us from the beginning. We were, uh, we were involved with a, another producer for a number of years who uh, just, you know, couldn't put the production together. But uh, he was very close many times, and he, and he was a very accomplished producer. He was head of Paramount and um, head of Universal at one time. So we've been with some quality people. When I first wrote the story, and it became a book proposal before the book was produced, Jonathan Wells at Warner Brothers called me. And he's an ex-USC guy, and he was, you know, big producer at that time on top with ER and a bunch of, bunch of credits. And he was in the number one office in Warner Brothers, and I remember going there with Sam Cunningham and Mark Huska, who helped me create the story. And, um, you know, he said, this is a $70 million production. We're going to get right on it and do it. And do you have an agent? We didn't have an agent at the time. I said, no, but I'll have one by the end of the day, and I did. And, you know, and unfortunately, a fellow teammate had taken my story and put his name on it and uh, falsely written himself into the story. He wasn't even there at, uh, in Alabama. I won't tell you who it is. not important. The fact is, is that it convoluted the rights and took a while to straighten that out. A lot of people act like experts about this um, production, but it wasn't much talk until our story, Turning the Tide, came out and the book came out. John, Pap John Papadakis is our guest. Uh, after, uh, I guess, your career in football, you end up many years later uh, owning and operating a restaurant and becoming a fixture, uh, you know, greeting people and uh, singing and uh, give us like what got you into the restaurant business and then the well, the high the good Lord. yeah it was it was the good Lord my wife and I you know I met a girl at USC who really they say Helen of Troy was the face that launched a thousand ships right yeah well this woman she 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 launched my heart up into the moon and um, we were married right right after I got out of school, and we were 22 when we were married. We were married in London. We went to Greece for a honeymoon. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of a talkative guy and excitable, and I love people. 
and I love, you know, excitement. The excitement of being around people just is astounding to me, you know, much like Petro and the rest of the family. I'm Greek, and so people would say, John, you're too loud, you're too noisy, you always make a scene, you like yourself too much, you like other people way too much. Hell, I went to Greece when I was 22 years old. I saw there were 9 million people like me. I was normal. So I came back and opened up a Greek restaurant so I could be that guy, you know, and make a living at it. And I'm happy I did because I made three or four times what the number one picks would have made, and I was <laughs> offered pro contracts. You know, I was offered the uh, a number of teams, and I said, don't draft me, don't waste a pick. And they still offered me contracts, but I wasn't interested in playing professional football. I was interested in owning my own business. I'd worked for my father in retail businesses. You know, he had liquor stores and storefronts and things like that. And I'd worked there since I was old enough to look over a counter. And I learned how to keep a store, you know, to open it up at 6 a.m. and to work until the evening, count all the money and put it away and lock the safe and watch your back and, you know, all that. And uh, it paid off because I wasn't afraid to open my own store. But I wanted to have a restaurant where I could share my Greek culture because I thought it was great being Greek, you know. And, and I was, uh, we were brought up with that theme, much like that movie, The Big Fat Greek Wedding. That was yeah. my family. I love that. Uh, John Papadakis, uh, you have performed. You've got music on apple music you have sang you've sung songs on this show i have your cd uh do you want to i i'd be remiss if if i didn't have you sing a little something oh. as we go to commercial break i hear Com music when i look at you uh, that's the first song on my new cd it's called uh the song is you oh what a song that is oscar hammerstein jerome kern Anyway, listen, performing in front of people singing is a dream come true. It really is. And, you know, my family got me into it because my youngest son, Demetrius, who was a great football player, played br briefly at UCLA. He got into a terrible car accident and broke some bones and did, didn't continue after that. But um, he was, uh, uh, you know, he, he wanted to join the choir about seven, eight years ago. And I had uh, closed and sold the restaurant. So I said, sure, let's join. And I, in the choir, I heard my voice open up, you know, and, and I could, no note was beyond me. In the meantime, I've been going to jazz clubs all my life. The first date with my wife was at a place called Shelley's Manhole, Shelley Man, uh, in, on Coinga in Hollywood. Saw a Hungarian guitarist named Gabor Zabol, who I was friendly with because I got to know all the jazz artists, was going in those clubs since I was 15. I, I never went to rock concerts. I was always loved the intimacy and the the kind of a direct, you know, charge you'd get out of the jazz club, and you'd be so close to the musicians, and they were so passionate and rhythmic and melodic, you know, that it drove me nuts. I loved it. So it was natural for me to start singing jazz. It was my dream. I started collaborating and writing songs, which you'll find on every album I've done, each there's two or three or four, you know, original songs on each album. And it's a, it's a dream come true to perform and, sh and share that part of yourself with people. In the restaurant, you can do so much. You know, you can feed them and you can get intimate with them like that and, and, and be good to them. 
and um, it's so much more uh, singing because you're 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 exposing something inside of you. You're sharing your your feelings about what you're expressing through the lyrics. John Papadakis, hey, I love bringing you on the show. I want uh, next time you perform, I told Petros we're going to get tickets. Anna and I are going to come check it out. Uh, you know, keep doing what you're doing and stay in touch. I appreciate you, and, and I love getting notes from you as well. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on today, John. God be with you and yours. Same to you. There's John Papadakis, former USC football player. If you're looking for the book, and I've got people who are tweeting at me, asking me about the book, or messaging me, asking me about the book, um, I want you to check it out. It It's about Sam Cunningham, but it's really about the turning of the tide and the tension in the South in Birmingham in 1969-1970 and the impact that USC in a football game played there had uh, on the Alabama program and people in Birmingham. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I love that interview. Really enjoyed that. Uh, coming up, top of the hour, what do we have going on, guys? We got uh, Talk Timbers. Talk Timbers on a Wednesday. Talk Timbers on a Wednesday. The Pulse back on Thursday. This radio show uh, is uh, going to take a deep dive tomorrow on some college basketball, among other things. Uh, John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group. You'll hear from him on tomorrow's show. Also, uh, we'll go to Tempe, Arizona. Check in with Arizona State football. Beat Reporter covers the team there, covers it like none other. Will talk to us about their schedule, Kenny Dillingham, also Arizona State men's basketball, which uh, Bobby Hurley's caught lightning in a bottle. I don't know whether to take ASU seriously yet. Feels like uh, feels like they're really good, but I don't know whether to take them seriously yet because. I need to see them play somebody, and they're going to play somebody this week. They got they have tomorrow night. They have UCLA. Saturday they have USC. Um, you know I know Arizona State came to the state of Oregon and swept the Oregon schools, but it's a different animal right now when you talk about USC and UCLA in uh, men's college basketball. So we uh, we will uh, take a dive on that on tomorrow's show and on Friday as well. Bobby Hurley's going to join us on Friday's show. I am told. Um, I do need. I went long with John Papadakis, didn't I, Stephen? Ah, uh, yeah, you did. So I need to take a break here. You do. Right? Yeah, you need one more break. Let's let's take a break, and then I'll come back with some parting thoughts. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on seven fifty. The game. Oh, we had a good show today. We talked about the schedule reveal, Pac-12 uh, conference. Uh, we uh, have talked about the reaction uh, as uh, the Pac-12 unveiled their schedule. We have talked about the weak links when it comes to the playoffs uh, as you look across the playoff landscape. Uh, we have also uh, did a we did a new thing at five o'clock. We had we had a different version of the five at five, and John Papadakis delivered us some stories and and crooned just for a little bit for us. Uh, we got a good show tomorrow. I hope you're here for it. I want you here for it at three o'clock. 
wherever you're listening. I don't know if you're listening uh, on Fox Sports Eugene, Powerhouse Signal down in Eugene, 1050 AM, or if you're listening on 750 The Game in Portland. Shout out to uh, all the listeners there in Roseburg, people listening in Roseburg on 1490 AM in Douglas County. Uh, and uh, also for those in Klamath Falls on 960 AM, I appreciate everybody who listens to the show and streamers. Uh, I got some messages today. Uh, got a couple DMs from people listening in the Bay Area and other places who are enjoying the Papadakis interview. So wherever you're listening, I appreciate that you're there. Um, you know, I'll probably go in deeper depth tomorrow about this because I'm going to run out of time here. But it means a lot to me that you make this show part of your day. And, and not in a ham-handed, corny way, but it just means a lot to me that that you choose this show and you you squeeze us in. And so thank you for those of you out there who do it. And it's the it's one of the amazing things, you know, as I travel around and I'm in a stadium or I'm in a grocery store or a gas station and somebody goes, hey, uh, I listen to your show. It means a lot to me. So thank you for if you're if you're listening. Thank you if you're reading at johnconzano.com. Uh, I know that you have busy lives. Uh, it's one of my peeves when people go, oh, I'm so busy. Uh, you know, we're all busy, um, and I appreciate you making the show part of your day. Also on tomorrow's show, comedian Sam Morrill. Do you know who that is, Peter? I do not. Sam Morrill on the show tomorrow. He is a comedian. He will be joining us to talk about some sports. That dude's big. Look him up. He's big time. Maybe he's one of these comedians who everybody's seen him, but nobody knows his name. Uh, they, his publicist reached out to me and said, hey, can he get on your show? He's got some kind of new special going on. But this is the guy that, um, he, you know, he's been in some movies too, but this is the, he's a stand-up comedian. Come on, he's yeah, all yeah, yeah. You know, you know what I mean? I'm you looking at a picture of him now. I know this dude. You know that guy. Everybody knows that Sam Morrill. He's the and guy so, from The Thing, yeah. Yeah, the guy from The Thing. You know, he's been like Conan, and he's been on... Yeah, you know, Comedy Central, America's Got Talent, uh, a bunch of things. I, I think he was. Uh, I think he had a cameo in the the Joker film too. He was like a comedian on an open mic night during the movie. So um, he'll be on the show. We'll see if he's funny. I don't know if he's funny or not. We're gonna find out tomorrow. Is he funny or not? But apparently, he's got kind of a sports theme to what he does. So his publicist says, look, he's touring. He is doing a monster energy thing, and they're going all over the country, and I think he's coming to our region, and so they want him on the show. So uh, Sam Morrill will be on the show tomorrow, among other guests. We will work him into the rotation. If he's no good, we'll give him the hook. That's how it works here. I uh, appreciate everybody who makes the show part of their day. I said that. If you are listening via podcast, uh, give us a rating. Give us some feedback, and share the podcast liberally with your friends, family, and other interested parties. I liked the John Papadakis interview today. He reminds me of my grandfather. And I texted pa Petros during the break. I said, hey, your dad was on. He said, what would you talk about? Like, Petros probably worried about it. Don't worry. He didn't embarrass you. He made you proud. The bald-faced truth not here for a long time, just a good time.